the garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, Mid-South Gardening, and welcome to Mid-South Gardening. <laughs> we are here with you, awake or not. <laughs> I'm Veda. That's a questionable. That is so questionable today. <laughs> and I'm Kenneth with Dan West Garden Centers. And I'm Jim Crowder. The, the elephant in the room. The and the administrator of? Our Facebook group, <laughs> Mid-South Gardening. Gardening in USDA Zone 678. And this week we've had a flurry of, I don't know, we've gotten 35, 40 new members. Uh, and been lots of talk out there. Mm-hmm. about what's going on and people are encouraged because we're seeing some new growth yesterday mm-hmm. was cleaning up bajou bananas and they're sprouting yeah really you know uh and forsythia of course is in bloom a month early oh yeah yeah i mean these poor plants don't yeah. know what to do i saw a uh and winter ain't over no it's not over with yet we got february and early march to to go don't Jim? we have some cold weather coming in this week, or did it change yes, yeah, again? Yeah, there's some snow in the forecast down the road here, you know. Good. And I, I'm still a little concerned. China right now is going through what we went through with the flash freeze. It's kind of moved mm-hmm. around to the other side. And I'm just hoping this sucker's not coming back Does again. it circulate <laughs> around? Oh, no. So no, we could, don't, need, we don't need another one of those, I'm yeah. telling you. Jim, I did see on uh, Mid-South Gardening, your Facebook page, well, a young lady had uh, taken a picture of some lorpedlum in particular, mm-hmm. and I saw where she said they looked completely dead. She went out there and scratched them, and they, you know, she couldn't find any green up under there. And then someone right below her said, you know, yeah, now is a good time to go ahead and cut them back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. no. And yeah. then right below that, there's some people were like, no, 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 just give it a minute because, yeah. you know, remember what two or three years ago, lorpedlum were frozen the same way, not quite the same way, but you know, the same outcome. And they looked exactly like they do now. And um, most of those lower petlums actually came back. Now, there was some tip burn. Don't get me wrong. You had to cut them back a little bit. But it wasn't near the damage that it appeared to be. You know, if you go out there and look at them right now, they do look completely dead. But the last thing I would tell people to do on something like lower petlum, for example, is go out there and cut them back, you know, two or three inches off the ground. So I thought that was pretty neat that... You know, you would get these replies, but you'd get a lot of other replies up under that going, wait, wait, no, no, wait, no, no, yeah. hang on, just be patient, mm-hmm. you know? I wonder about the Chinese holly. I was scratching them yesterday, and I can't really tell. And Chinese holly? Yeah. I'm surprised they were hurt at all. Yeah, we've got them um, at the, down the street at Antiques, and then we've got them um, up in the courtyard, and they're in a protected area. They have no leaves, totally lost all their leaves. That's actually good when they do drop their leaves right. like that. Yeah, so that's one of those we're just going to hide and watch. Well, <laughs> just and just it's, wait and see. you know, we've said this a thousand times. You know, the, no one wants to hear, be patient, give it a minute, let's wait and see. You know, you walk out in your landscape. In fact, one of my wife's friends called her last night to talk to me <laughs> about her azaleas because they look like toast. Mm-hmm. They look fried. And I was telling the young lady, I said, look, every azalea that I've seen that looks just like the lore pedlums, for example, they look dead. All the foliage is burned on them. I said, but it looks like most of the damage was confined to the foliage. If you go out there on azaleas, for the most part, and scratch them with your thumb, they're still good and green up under there. So I was like, don't do anything. Let's just be patient. You can feed them with an organic if you want, but don't cut them back at all. 
And she was, she said, thank God I called because her husband was going to start cutting them back today. Oh, so I'm like, guys, yeah. you know, I get it. Yeah, we do. We just have to wait and see. And yeah, like you were talking about on the Laura Petalums that year that it happened, we were sure they just have to be gone. And yeah, they started coming back, back out. And then I've had a lot of phone calls this week. Um, you know, of course, we're getting still phone calls every day about mm-hmm. the flash freeze that came through here and everything looks horrible. We all know that. But one uh, of the questions is still about the distillium. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just fried also. And so many people were just beginning to embrace yeah. distillium for all the right reasons, you know, because there's so many different varieties and there's a variety for every, you know, occasion in your landscape. And a lot of people were, you know, as their autolucans was, were mm-hmm. dying, they were replacing them with distilliums of some variety. And they look bad. And, I, Jim, have you heard of Veda? I mean. Well, the ones that are around my daughter's pool are dead. Dead. Mm-hmm. Dead to the ground. Ah. You know, now, yeah. I, if their roots are you know i i'm not a big fan of waiting for something to come back from the roots i mean yeah, you know i don't no, wait have five years back. for it to look decent yeah. uh so they're they're going to be taken out we cleaned up all the baju bananas yesterday and as i was telling her earlier i think there's little sprouts around coming up from the bajus so they think it's springtime um but yeah the these distilliums and it's i don't know the cultivar but it was one that had the blue leaves mm-hmm. and kind of upright growth um, but it, uh, they're, uh, they're toast, totally. Oh, I've wow. seen a landscape, and I think they planted, look like about 30 of them. And yeah. I'm thinking they're toast, too, because oh, we were getting real confident. Yeah. All right, so moving are. forward, does that mean that we're going to be a little cautious on these plants that, um, you know, that didn't come back and aren't going to come back? You yeah, know, that, we're, we're pretty stupid. We, we tend to do it over <laughs> and over and over. <laughs> Well, it just isn't going to happen again. (laughs) I don't know about that. I don't either. But that's how we think. I'm I'm more concerned about the fact that we're not getting cold for long periods of time and Mm -hmm. setting things into dormancy. Because it screws up bloom cycles. Mm -hmm. um, Fruiting things. It really gives you grief with um, um, sun scald during the spring if we have these Mm -hmm. warm spells. You know, because remember the one of the worst freezes we had here was in like April sixteenth or something. We had had March where it was just beautiful, yeah, gorgeous, which and is not it, uncommon. The greenhouses were getting so hot, people didn't want to go in there, mm-hmm. so we cut the plastic off the houses in March. In March, okay, and which was great. And yeah. then all of a sudden, April sixteenth, it, it didn't go very far, but you know, like twenty five, twenty six uh-huh. degrees. And it did huge amount of damage to things that were plump and juicy already. Yeah, mm. and annuals. I'm sure garden centers had annuals in by then. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, You're having to protect everything, but it's just, you know, it, it ain't over yet. I wish we would get some, you know, hard cold spells. Sustained, you know, you yeah, mean. December or so to set things into dormancy well. And then, uh, and then have a little more cooler weather. Well, I, I mean, I wonder if, if the mid south winters are changing oh absolutely absolutely you know because there again i mean we really don't get this it it doesn't seem like Mm -hmm. this cold weather you know we never get it in november really in december uh substantially and then it seems like here comes january and february even early march and jim's talking about even april you know so it's always the latter part of the year when these plants think it's time to start coming out yeah and then we get that cold weather yeah because think about like a number of years ago where 
we would talk about put the pre-emergence out when the forsythias exactly. bloom and all right. these dates that we had to do certain things. Now we can't go by them because it's well, all I messed up. Well, I think you probably should still because yeah. everything else, you know, I saw a beautiful stand of annual bluegrass. In fact, I'd written down pre-emergent in my notes right here. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, and uh, he's like, Kenny, you know, should I go ahead and put my pre-emergent down? And I said, you know, yes. And the reason I said that is not because of the date of the calendar. Mm-hmm. It's because of the weather we're having. You know, all it takes is two or three weeks of decent, mild weather like we've had. And these weed seeds will start right. to germinate. Yeah. I think the good thing is, is just to keep putting it out throughout the year so you're never without pre-emergent. Right. And you're saying like every three months. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because the residual is about three months, up to four months, depending on how heavy you put it down. But if you do it every two, uh, three to four months, you're going to keep, depending on how heavy you put mm-hmm. it down, you're going to keep that weed seed from germinating. Yeah. But I would at least do it now, honestly, starting now, this time-ish. And then come back in three months. <laughs> this time is... Yeah, well, I mean, and come back and, and do it again because, you know, he was really concerned more about crabgrass than anything. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he would love the other weeds not to come up, too. And I explained to him, not all weeds come up from seeds. Some of them come back from a root. He mentioned violets and nutgrass. And I'm like, well, you got to do some spraying mm-hmm. to get rid of those, too. But I said I would do it now and come back in, in three months and do it again. And he questioned. He said, well, I used to do it around early March, you know, yeah. as my first application. I'm like... That's all fine and good if it was cool until mm-hmm. early March. Right. So you, you really, on pre-emergence around here, you can't really go by the, especially this time of year, you can't go by the date of the calendar. And um, we've gotten into where we used to recommend putting pre-emergent down twice a year because we were having, you know, longer. You would do it in the winter, fall and do it again in the spring. And then all of a sudden we're like three times a year. And because of the weather changing the up and down. And now we're almost on four times a year. But we need to go to a break. So, y'all, thanks for listening this morning. And y'all give us a call, 901-260-5926. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Give us a call, 901-260-5926. Or you can call and... uh, be on air or you can just leave the message with philip and he'll put it on the screen and we can answer it that way in case you don't want to talk on air yeah, and i'm sitting here looking at uh facebook the mighty 990 mm-hmm. and you can shoot us a text there and jan's uh, listening as we speak and you get to see veda and jim and kenneth and i'm stuck in kenneth. <laughs> anyway so it's live <laughs> we put the pretty face down here at the end of oh, the table God. so y'all can see. And that would be Jim down here. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, uh, guys, if you happen to miss this, you can always go to kwinradio.com, listen to the podcast anytime you want. So, um, yeah, a lot of different ways to get in touch with us and really good ways yeah. to listen to us later on. Last uh, week I was talking about us moving our house plants uh, to the other side, the other side, to the far side, and... Uh, at um, Palladio Garden, and a lot of people took that as... Now, when you say the other side, you mean the other side of the street. The other side of the street, yeah. Yeah, People took that as we were moving all, 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 all of Palladio Garden to a whole other place. But we've taken our garden center, we're moving it over 
to be in the showroom. Yeah. And because we extend far back and a central barbecue is taking our spot. They needed a little bit of extra mean, room there. You have to. Well, they couldn't rebuild on that spot. Mm-hmm. There was some were. there was some things going on. You know how city planning and all yeah. that can be. I don't I don't think it was a negative or anything. But so, I mean, it's our duty to give Central Barbecue a spot. You, you can't not have Central Barbecue <laughs> on Central. Well, yeah, <laughs> let me translate that for you. Now Veda doesn't have to walk out in the cold between the two buildings. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Good translation. Except for now i got to go the other way to the warehouse. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah there's always something. But, but we, y'all, we were talking about the pre-emergence a while ago. And, you know, the one thing that can be somewhat confusing other than when to put it down is there's so many different types of pre-emergence on the market. Um, and they're all, you know, good. They all do what they're supposed to do. But the one that I really like is the uh, the high-yield weed and grass stopper. Now, the reason I like that product is you can put it in your lawn, but you can also apply this product into your beds. And the same guy that I was telling you I was talking to about putting the pre-emergent down, he wanted to come back and put some, believe it or not, zoysia seed down uh, and he asked me when. I said, typically around mid-May. It's got to be really hot for Bermuda or zoysia seed to go down and germinate the way it should. And uh, I just, you know, made a comment to him. I said, look, if you put a pre-emergent down, try to keep it off these areas where you're going to come back and put seed down. Because he was fixing to put this stuff everywhere and then come back in mid-May, put that zoysia seed down. And, of course, nothing's going to germinate if you have a residual of that pre-emergent. So, you know, we say this, and we'll say it a thousand more times. It's it's really important to keep in mind, if you're going to put any seed down within three months, do not put that pre-emergent down in those same spots. (laughs) You know, and zoysia seed is not inexpensive. No, it's not. So, you know. What's the germination rate? Isn't it slow? Well, I told this gentleman on on zoysia seed in particular, uh, it is. You know, the germination percentage is actually pretty good, but it's very, very slow to establish. It's one of those things, unlike Bermuda seed, you can throw Bermuda out there, water it in a couple of times, and go about your business, it's going to do just fine, right? You put zoysia seed out there, you're going to have to baby that stuff for this whole year. It takes really a whole growing season for that zoysia seed to become established because it's just so much slower than that Bermuda. So, um, I mean, but it can be done. And, I was, you know, the Zenith zoysia seed is the, usually the one that you find on the market. Uh, hardly expensive, but cheaper than putting sod down. So it's just, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to him about that. Now, be careful. You know, A, be, be aware of what you're doing with zoysia seed. It's going to take a while for that stuff to become established. You've got to stay on it. And don't dare put a pre-emergent down in the same area that you're going to put that seed down. Because we see it and hear it every year. Put the seed mm-hmm. down. Not one seed germinates. You start asking them questions. Hey, did you put a pre-emergent down in the last three months? Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, good to know. All right. So we can um, put down compost, natural fertilizer, things like that, if you're wanting to do something in your yard to get ahead on your, your lawn or you just want to do something. You know, Using organic fertilizers is something you can do when you want to do something outside, <laughs> but um, and you feel like you're doing something good for your landscape, which you are. I do know that if you're going to use like the six twelve twelve and some of those other fertilizers, you should still wait because, like Jim was saying, and you were saying, is you know we'll put that down because the weather seems like it's springy, but and it is, and <clears throat> we'll get new growth because it'll it'll make it grow a little quicker than we're wanting right now, and then we get that freeze again, then we do some damage to the tips. How much damage? You know, I do hear about 
or know that we don't want to put new growth on. We don't want to get things going early, early on, yeah, prematurely. That it'll <clears throat> damage the the <clears throat> new growth or all. But does it affect the entire plant, or are we just losing the new growth? Well, no. I mean, it does because then it's got to expend that that much more energy to regrow. That new you know, growth, initially. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know when I when I tell people as far as their lawn goes, I mean yeah, organics you can put down any time. That's one of the beauties of it. But if you're using a synthetic fertilizer, even a lawn food, for example, you know I always wait till my grass just starts to green up, till I start seeing some green out there, because it really doesn't do you a lot of good. You're gonna lose a lot of that nitrate, a lot of that nitrogen if you put it down prematurely. Because uh, it just doesn't last that long. Well, some of them do are long lasting, but the ones that are quick release, you're going to lose all that before you get a chance to use it. Yeah. So if you're going to go out there with a six twelve twelve or triple thirteen, even urea, something like that, you want to wait till that lawn really starts to green up before you use those all products. Right. So what about? I'm ready to. Can I plant sweet peas now? Yes. Yes, I'm thinking so. What can we do right now? Um, spinach. Yeah, I mean, your, yeah, your leafy vegetables, people mm-hmm. are starting to plant again. Of course, there again, this time of year, <laughs> you never know what our weather is going to do. I mean, this is the most uncertain time of the years right now when it comes to our weather. But leafy vegetables, you know, your, your mustard, your greens, your kales, your spinach, uh, lettuce, those kind of things, Veda, people are starting to plant. Uh, sweet peas, you mentioned. Some people are already starting to plant some nasturtiums and so forth. Uh, but it I all de- didn't think about doing nasturtiums right now. But it just all depends on the weather. And all those are cool weather type mm-hmm. plants, you know? Yeah. Now, some people start them indoors and transplant them outside. But when it comes to things like greens, I'm not going to waste my time starting those indoors. Right. I like because they're so yeah. easy to sow. Yeah, just put those and, out. And look, in two and a half weeks, if you don't have a good stand, just do it again. And I ordered not a huge amount of seeds, but um, all the new ones. I was like, I'm just going to get all the new ones. Forget about the old ones. I'm going to get all the new varieties. You hear that, Jim? Like, people don't like the old stuff anymore, you know? Well, you can get See how old. she's treating me? <laughs> well, my, my theory is you can get all the old stuff everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe come get the, the – it's the newer varieties that have come out, which um, could actually be old varieties remarketed, <laughs> for all I know. I have to go back and look and see what I've gotten because I know I've got some stuff for cool weather to we start a, right now. I had a lady coming to the garden center, and I think she bought like 65 packs of zinnia seeds, and I'm thinking, wow, where are these going? Either sixty-five packs, yes, of zinnias, gorgeous. So she's probably gonna like do some, wait a couple weeks, put some more out, wait a couple of weeks. I'm thinking, Veda, she's got to be giving some of these things away. I mean, come on, sixty-five gift, isn't it? Of course it is. I mean, it's one of the easiest flowers to grow. It's one of the best cut flowers you can ever get your hands on. Uh, but I was like, man, that's so a lot So when of do you think, I hear a lot of people wait till July or so to, to seed them because of the powdery mildew. If we seed them too early, then they, yeah, you gotta wait. they've got the powdery mildew and all. What do you think? Well, there again, it, it all depends on the weather. You know, if we have a very wet spring, which a lot of times we do, um, you know, last year, remember we had a wet winter. It was from November to March. It was wet almost every day. But if you have a very wet spring when, when things are coming out, new growth is coming out, you mentioned powdery mildew. That's just one fungal pathogen that we have to worry about because then we get the humidity with it. And you get a, a warm, humid environment, especially on things like bee balm and 
garden flocks and zinnias like you mentioned you're going to get mildew every time yeah i'm liking that they're coming out with new garden flocks that is resisting the powdery mildew more more resistant. more resistant because you know you can see them on the um the nursery shelves a lot of times four varieties together and one will just that's right have the powdery mildew and the other barely have it so you're like okay this one with the powdery mildew, I'll never order you again. Yeah, but isn't it amazing, though, how you're exactly right? We will it buy, is amazing I'm exactly right. Well, we'll, <laughs> buy, we'll buy certain plants mm-hmm. knowing that they are very susceptible potentially yeah. to insects right. or disease. I mean, we, we do it. We know that when we buy garden flocks, mm-hmm. especially the older varieties like you mentioned, Veda, we're probably going to see powdery mildew on there. You know, you just are. If you get honeysuckle, you know, and it's wet in the spring, you're going to see powdery mildew on there. So if you buy roses a lot of times, you expect to see black spot on it. Right. So, you know, we kind of live with that, if you will, knowing that Mm -hmm. there are some products out there that we can use and spray to help combat the problem. But some plants are just more problematic, potentially, than others you know speaking of zinnias last year i did a container garden and i had a couple of zinnias in there well the verbena just incredibly got huge and it and it started taking over the zinnia Mm. and some other stuff so i just cut the zinnia back because it was black and powdery mildew and all of that cut it back and then as the season went on it took my, over yeah no my verbena would yeah quit growing and yeah the that zinnias. one came back just one came back big and beautiful and tons of blooms and then it got cold so i didn't get to see them all bloom <laughs> all right y'all get your gardening questions together and give us a call 901-260-5926 Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. You can give us a call, 901-260-5926. But if not, we have plenty of topics to talk about. You've got three gardeners here with over 100 years of experience in all different categories. It sounds good, but it sounds really bad. Yeah, it does. And I'm saying it's between all three of us. It's not just one. Okay. It's got well, she was looking years. at me. I was, wasn't I? Yeah, you were looking yeah. right at me. But also, you can uh, shoot us a text on the Mighty 990 uh, Facebook page. And then later on, listen to the podcast, kwinradio.com. And, of course, it's streaming live all the time. So 901-260-5926. Well... We were talking about the pruning thing again. Just wanted to go over that uh, real quick, that we don't want to go out and do any pruning because we think anything's dead. Now, so, I, we can go out there and do some pruning on some deciduous trees. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, on the shrubs and all, don't don't prune them just because you think they're dead. Right. Yeah. Um, now's a good time, like on trees, like you're saying, to cut out dead, disease, damaged. Mm-hmm. There was this, this thing, and, and mm-hmm. I saw it... A, man 10 years ago or something and it just popped back up um how to kill a tree you know how to kill a tree so one was <laughs> planet <laughs> right right planet yeah uh don't oh top the tree this is how you kill a tree top the tree to encourage water sprouts that's so, that's never a good look yeah, and of course so many times you see where mlg and w would go out there for the right reasons so and they'll top these they're not pruning no no yeah. no they're topping these trees yeah. and then you get this just crazy bush looking growth <laughs> 
coming from the top of the tree, and it, and it looks alien almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's not a good fit when you're cutting yeah. trees like that, no. So, and I guess they have to do so many that they just take that big buzzard, that buzzard thing, that buzz saw, that's what I'm going to call it, buzz saw, and just go across and the And let me tops. tell you, and one of the weirdest things that I've ever seen, uh, there's a house, I'm not going to say where, <laughs> Is here in or Memphis. the address. No, or the address. Street, yeah. But uh, they they also, now this was on the side, in their side yard, okay? These were pine trees, mm-hmm. okay? Pine trees are grown to just do their thing and get as tall as they want to get. And they did have some electrical wires on the south side of their house, on the side yard. And I don't think MLG and W did it. I think the homeowners had somebody do it. These things were topped like a big, huge shrub. And oh, it was they the, rounded them all? Well, no, they were flat on the top. <laughs> oh, okay. And y'all, I mean, it, it was so unreal looking that mm-hmm. at first it, I was like, man, that is, that's pretty neat. But then you start really looking yeah. at it, and I'm like, that, but no. it's not good. No, Looks no, no. cool, but not good. I've never seen a, 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 I've never seen a stand, a line of pine trees grown to where it looks like a huge holly. Let me put it that way. Interesting. And, and and flat on the top, all the way across. Remember, I told y'all this a long time ago. Everything's a long time ago today. Um, I went through a neighborhood that had, in, in the front of each house, trees planted that looked like the the only thing that left that was left were the branches on the bottom, and then another set of branches, and then nothing. Like huh. like they were gonna what's the word pilardum. Wow. Yeah, and in the whole neighborhood had them like that, and I was I felt like I was in another dimension or something, and I thought, well, did they transplant them from somewhere under the power and the whole lines? neighborhood was doing the it? whole neighborhood had them. I don't understand. I do not understand. And the reason we're bringing this up is, you know, eventually with our shrubs that look dead, there will become a time when we can go out there and selectively prune them. Okay, and if you have trees, and Jim, you know this as well as anybody. You can prune, but there's a right way and there's a wrong way. No, there's only one right way to prune a tree. You know? How's that, Jim? Hmm? The right way. Okay. Anything <laughs> else is not pruning. No, but that's, but that's my point. I mean, if you're, you know, a lot of us homeowners want to do things ourselves, but just keep in mind, um, there, there can be some wrong ways to go out there and, and oh, do let's this. Let's see. Here's and some more. Tree, tree companies are in the business of making money. And if you tell them you want something done, they're going to do it, mm-hmm. whether okay? the, whether it whether it's it or the not. right thing or mm-hmm. not. Uh, there's a guy that does some work, used to do some work for us out at to sixty four contract kind of stuff, and he he uh, somebody wanted him to remove the tops out of tops some trees, and it was the middle of July, mm. you know, and he said, you know, you, you can't do that. If if we top those, what's going to happen is it's going to cook the inside yeah. of the tree. Not going to be healthy on, and the guy was very appreciative, you know. And then he went by the house two weeks later, and the trees mm-hmm. had been topped. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. so, the guy—that's what he wanted, and he mm-hmm. wanted it now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know. So sometimes. Uh, sometimes, you know, you you do what the customer wants. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but it, it does happen. Well, and but but now is a good time to go in there and selectively yeah, clean tr- up and, and and thin out these deciduous trees, oak trees, well, tulip I wouldn't, poppers. You know, I wouldn't do maples. I wouldn't do birches. Right. Now. I would wait till fall now because right. sap's rising. They're going to bleed out and have puddles on the ground. And, and, and here it is, not even the end of January. Right. And it, we're talking about the weather a while ago. How you know it's up and down. 
We've had some mild temperatures. I mean, look at the last two days. Blue, sunny skies. A little chilly, but, yeah. you know, so it's like Paul Little used to always say, mm-hmm. we are definitely the black hole of horticulture yeah. here. And I mean that in a good way, by the way. Right. It just, it just makes us better gardeners, right? Um, let's see. What were some other ones? Leave crossing branches to rub bark ro- wounds, which is true. I do see. You see crossing branches, and sometimes you see them grow together as well. But a lot of, if, if they're crossing and with the wind blowing and all that, they'll scratch on each other and leave a wound that's a that's something to watch for oh here's how to kill a tree spray herbicides over the tree root area to weaken tree we should talk about that with the weed and feeds up around the root system yeah most of the weed killers that you buy especially these broadleaf weed killers that's got dicamba in it you know if you read the label which of course i don't think anyone ever does but if you read the label it says you know not recommended to use within the drip line of any desirable tree and the drip line is like Jim always says, and we always say, is not only where the limbs go out straight down, it's even beyond mm. that, okay? So technically, you know, you're not supposed to spray any herbicide for the most part, especially those that have dicamba, within the drip line of a tree. Now, a lot of times that's really hard not to do, mm. but it can definitely, if, you, if you're using the, the product that can really affect these woody tissue plants like trees and you're putting it down pretty heavy, you can do some damage to these trees. How many times have we seen that, Jim? Bunch. You bunch. Know. You know, and it's okay to go in there and spot spray some dandelions. You're not mm-hmm. putting down enough chemical to damage a tree. Remember, your active roots, your feeder roots, are from 10 feet or so inside your drip line to, you know, 50 feet or so outside your drip line. So if you're putting a weed and feed out in your turf in full sun, you're likely giving that to your tree also. Uh, and it, what it does, it causes, just like it does to weeds, it causes those vascular tissues to erupt and, dis- and you'll get leaves that are contorted and curled because they're growth hormones. Um, mm-hmm. And if you just continue you're to out, do you're, that, you're going to end up weakening that tree. It's make it much more susceptible to insects and other issues mm-hmm. that uh, will really mm-hmm. play havoc on right. it. Yeah, and a lot of people think because they didn't see it die immediately that it was okay. But no, some things like this can take a number of years or just be stressed looking the whole time. Um, A classic case is, you know, the uh, MSM that was a lot of the the lawn companies started using uh, as a replacement for um, uh, uh, MSMA. What they found was on certain oak trees, particularly it would stop the bud swell mm-hmm. and lawns that were sprayed the trees in july had still not leaped out Ooh, wow yeah and uh, in fact in talking to a lady uh, to a group one day a lady had had just had a huge oak tree taken down she said it was alive but it never sprouted oh, wow you know and so they took it out and that's what it was she lived in a very small kind of zero lot line community mm-hmm. they're treating all the lawns with this and, and and they still are yeah and that's you know so the tree would not have come back out or it, she it depends on if you continue doing that uh yeah. and in talking with kenny crenshaw over at herbis systems they had reduced the amount of mm-hmm. chemical uh by like down to by 75% or so to prevent this from happening. Wow. And because, you know, if you think about it, we've said this many times before, 
the tree roots around here, for the most part, they're right there at the surface. I mean, it's they're yeah. shallow rooted. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you have a what they call a deep rooted tree in there Memphis, Tennessee. It's still going to be shallow rooted because of all the clay we have around here. So if you're out there spraying, and especially the do the DIYers, you know. <laughs> If one gallon of spray should cover my front yard, well, I know 10 gallons mm-hmm. would do it, right? Right. So you're putting this stuff down way too heavy anyway. Uh, so, yeah, just keep that in mind. Good point, Vader, when you're out there spraying, uh, you know, your weeds. And it's not only the homeowners. Like Jim was just saying, sometimes these uh, landscape companies or these spray companies, uh, you know, they're causing some damage not only to these trees but our ornamental shrubs so forth. So we've got to be careful, guys, when we're out there using herbicides. We're using things that kill green tissue, okay? And it, it's hard to believe that you actually put enough in there, you know, it's you, because know. you can dump it in there and there's no smell or you see no color and you think, I, I probably didn't measure that right. Let me get a little bit more, but that's not right. That's a good point, but we got to be careful. You know? Okay, I guess we will. Let's go to another break and um, call us 901-260-5926. Good morning. Welcome back. 901-260-5926. You can listen to our podcast anytime. Uh, Right now you can watch us on Facebook Live and you can post questions there also. Uh, Jan has sent me a picture of this and I'm sure a lot of y'all have seen this, but it's, I love it. Um, It's like winner's really mad and keeps storming out of the room and then coming back yelling. And another thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. Just like a winter around here. Yeah. I saw some uh, landscape companies uh, cutting crepe myrtles back the other day. And beautiful day there again, cutting them back. And I'm just, I was thinking, you know, this is still January. Mm -hmm. And I don't have trouble doing that. Some are flowering shrubs, even if they're healthy. It's good. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, we know that crepe myrtles bloom on the same year's growth. But I've never, ever seen them do it this early before. Yeah, seldom do they get weather like this this good to work in. To work that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's our weather mm-hmm. this time of yeah. year, and this is when it's the most unpredictable. Now, I wouldn't go out there. We've already talked about, you know, not cutting all the, the damage stuff back for all the right reasons. And then even monkey grass, Jim, I still... Oh, it's, it looks like crap anyway. It, it looks nice. horrible. Yeah. But I would still give it just a minute, no. I think, before I went out there and cut it back. And I know how tough monkey grass is. We're talking about monkey grass here, you know? I go out there and mow it down. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a problem with it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And getting it down, you know, really low and let it just... No, let's it'll get be them fine. fingers down there <laughs> about like that. Lower is like this. Really low? <laughs> no, yeah. I've noticed that whatever winter it is... People are just chopping that monkey grass mm-hmm. down, and it, it doesn't seem to bother it. And what yeah, about the, the dwarf mondo? You know, the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, it even got burned really yeah. bad this year. Yeah. This year I would do it. Normally I don't, because mondo doesn't really look ugly even after the new growth comes exactly. in. Exactly. Uh, well, dwarf mondo doesn't. Yeah. Um, but so when you get in I, there. I would not do that. Normally would not prune that, but... I'm telling you because it, it looks bad. bad. Yeah. yeah. I did see some dwarf mondo that I'm not, I don't think is going to come back. It was pre-stressed though as well it, it dried out a few times this summer well, which is different so, from just having that winter burn mm-hmm. on you know these ground covers yeah. including dwarf mondo but you know always you know we see a few yellow brown uh pieces in there but the new growth usually comes back out and it more or less hides mm-hmm. it you, you can go out there and selectively kind of clean it up 
But I'm seeing it where it's just it looks like the monkey grass just really burned all the way down probably to the you know the core mm-hmm. down there. So you know whether you're getting a pair of scissors and out there cutting them back, whether it's a weed eater or you know whatever is the best way for you to get this stuff cut back. And you're really doing it just for aesthetic reasons mm-hmm. when it comes to monkey grass and mondo grass. It's not it wouldn't hurt if you didn't cut it back. But it's going to look pretty ratty even through the growing season this year if you don't. Yeah, I can't deal with that. Uh, on the trees, one thing also that has been questions, uh, questioned a lot is how you stake your trees, how long you leave your stakes up to support your tree. On a young tree that you plant. Yeah, and we know, and I've seen people leave them for a long time where where the uh what they use to tie the tree up has actually gets cut into the tree. Not good, never right. good. And then... Also, if you leave a tree stake up too long, it actually weakens the tree root Isn't because they fix it where it doesn't rock. Yeah. It's got to rock Really, a the best bit. way is take a single stake, drive it as close to the trunk as you can, all the way down through your root ball into the subsoil, uh, and then attach to it so it can sway in the wind. Yeah. That will give you the strongest trunk and mm-hmm. give you the support. also gets it out of the way of the mower. I know I like it yeah. because clumsy me just <laughs> runs right through the yard yeah. and runs right over them. And if there's a wire out there, I'll trip on. Same, it. Yeah, yeah, same. That's why I've, I really like this staking the tree next to the next to the tree, and and then use something soft to tie it. Um, I've seen people use wire, and then when the tree is walking, rocking, it's cutting into the tree. So I mean, yeah, there's that stretch tape. You know, mm-hmm. that green stretch tape. Yeah. It comes on a roll. All you do is just pull off what you need, pop it off, wrap it, tie it, but it's flat and it's mm-hmm. flexible. And you can use it to tie up almost anything without yeah, tearing like into that. the tissue. But even it needs to be checked and removed. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, of course. So often I've seen where they've used that on um, plants that are coming from yeah. a production nursery. And, yeah. and they, they wrap it on they, their pretty darn tight, Jim. They do. They do. Uh, wrap it around a, a bamboo cane or something, mm-hmm. and you can see the imprint mm-hmm. of it yeah. as that trunk is swelling. Yeah, so. how many times have we had to go through and cut those off? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and we don't need to leave the stake on there for uh, forever. So, I'll yeah, think about that. And but especially on a tree, like you said, because initially you're oh, putting the stake yeah. in there for support, but it's like a crutch. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's detrimental to the tree if you leave it on yeah. too long because you don't have that natural movement Mm-hmm. the swaying in the wind or whatever it is. So you got to have that movement for the trunk to become strong. Yeah. Yep. Think and about it. Not all the time do you actually have to stake a tree. You know, you don't have to stake every single tree you put in. So, you know, we stake them if the top is more than the root ball a lot of times, or if it's a big tree. But if you're putting a five-gallon in and it's straight, you hardly ever have to stake those trees. You don't have to stake a 10-gallon, no, 7, no, 15 maybe. But, yeah, you don't have to do a a tree stake. And you can get them, like, at the hardware store, just uh, two by or one by two. Can use that. that. And it, it makes me think of, let's say, like you said, the top. You know, it is heavier than really maybe what it should be. And it makes me think of, let's say, tree formed hydrangeas, for example. You've got mm-hmm. this massive top. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's been tree formed up there. You got this yeah. little trunk and this little bitty <laughs> root system down there. So you almost have to stake yeah. something like that initially, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of times when it comes to just, you know, decent trees, I, I try not to stake them. 
but but hydrangea trees. You almost, yeah, you have. You to. Just, I'm just telling you because there again, it's just they they have formed this thing to have this big canopy at the top. Yeah, like when we have them in the summer or late springtime, it's just like you said. The top is big, beautiful, lush blooms are hanging off and of it. It's pretty heavy, especially and, after a rain. Yeah, and then it's in this little small container that's always falling over the whole bush. It seems like so. Yeah, you would stake that. And also, you know, when you plant it too, your roots are going to be, you're going to see a lot of roots. So it's good to tease the roots out, take a sharp knife and cut some of them uh, so, so they can branch out quicker. That's a hard thing for people up. to do. I'm telling you, you know, because we've always heard, you know, don't disturb the root system. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. Some plants, I mean, azaleas, for example, you go buy a three-gallon pot of an azalea. Usually the root ball in there is just massed into <laughs> this three-gallon pot, and it's a very fibrous root system. So if anybody plants an azalea here in the Mid-South, I always say take the azalea out of the pot, get a little knife, and you slice that root ball from top to bottom about three different times. So you're purposely, purposely mm-hmm. cutting the root ball, yeah. okay? Where a lot of things, like a tree, for example, a lot of times you're gingerly <laughs> getting that thing up and getting it in the ground because you're trying not to disturb the root ball whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because sometimes the the root ball is not totally encased in the the pot. Right, right. right. So then that's where, like in annuals, a lot of times when it's early spring, we'll buy some annuals and you'll pull one out and there's hardly any roots. That's because they're just, they're newly. So you kind of have to lift those out. You don't cut or anything like that. And just because you're cutting the root ball of azaleas before you put those in the ground, doesn't mean you're cutting the root ball of everything you take out yeah. of a pot before you True. put it in the ground. So, <laughs> I've had to stomp on azalea pots to get them to loosen up, to get them off the azalea. I've stomped them and I've cut them gym? and I've planted them and they were fine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As yeah. long as you've got good drainage out there. Yeah. I didn't do that in the middle of the summer, though. I think that might be too stressful in the middle of summer on me. Well, <laughs> when, you know, in this nursery, we don't see as much of those full root balls as we used to because mm-hmm. they're shipping stuff so early. You know, most yeah. azaleas, I'll Instead of slicing them up and down, I'll cut off the bottom half mm-hmm. of the root ball. Mm-hmm. Just take it off and then just do loosen the roots around the outside and yeah, I've dig the that. hole about four inches deep, uh-huh. and about 18 inches wide, and loosen that soil yeah. up, set it in there so it's just a tad high, and water it and, you know, right, cause forget the bottom, about it. Uh, the bottom of the roots anyway don't ever root out. Yeah. A lot of times they just rot out. You see when you pull the shrub up. It's amazing. Yeah. All right, y'all, we'll be right back. Get your coffee, tea, and get ready for more gardening. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, gardeners, and welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Glad you can join us this morning. I'm Veda with Palladio Garden in Memphis. Yes, and I'm Kenneth with Dan West Garden Centers here in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm Jim Crowder, retired nurseryman and administrator of our Facebook group, Mid-South Gardening, gardening in USDA Zone 6, 7, and 8. And it is a great, great mm-hmm. Facebook group, I'm telling you. Uh, if you want to give us a call this morning, it's easy, 901-260-5926. You can always go to the Mighty 990 Facebook page and shoot us a text right there like Wendy did. We'll get to that question in just a second. 
And you can always go back and listen to a podcast anytime you want, kwamradio.com, streaming live all mm-hmm. the time. And speaking of texting on the Mighty 990 Facebook page, Wendy Johnson, she texted in. She says she has new growth emerging from the ground around the base of her fall-blooming uh, aster. Uh, this is Radon's favorite. Uh, is last year's growth normally removed? I would answer this, what, two ways? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would definitely cut them back uh, almost to ground level after this winter that we just had because I don't think any mm-hmm. of that aster is going to be yeah. viable above ground. It's coming back from the root. Secondly, let's say we even had a mild winter. I, I don't know. I just it, Asters look so blackish brown. <laughs> they just look horrible when they start, you know, when they die back mm-hmm. in the winter. Uh, I don't mind going in there and cutting those back a good bit every year. Well, you know how you look at a room and, and, and it's got some pretty brown and then it's got some nice looking black texture and you've got brown and you've got some blonde color in the black. You You're know? listening to Mitchell Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you, well, so think about that is outside in your landscape and maybe you can see the, the black aster as a, as a beauty, as yeah. another color it's in a, your winter landscape. It's kind of like, you know, leaving the spent blooms on your mm-hmm. hydrangeas you know yeah. those brown blooms through I the winter like yeah. But, and, and, yeah but a lot of people like no 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 mm-hmm. that looks too yeah. dead for me so they cut it off of there but wendy i would get in there and um i would definitely cut that aster uh back or those asters back and the good thing is is you're seeing new growth come back from that right. root system asters are usually pretty tough yeah. i'm gonna leave the ass for me i would leave the asters there just for um places for the wildlife to be more protected and the the seeds that could possibly you know be good for the birds and, and then go in there and cut it back uh when jim yeah. i mean you go ahead and do it now well, i do it now yeah, yeah. And, and, but if you well, how long could you wait i guess you could wait till the you know till you really mm-hmm. start seeing mid-april well you could wait but as warm as it's been and probably will have some warm weather the more new growth you get on it so it's just easier if you do it now get it out of the way you don't have to work around or damage the new growth yeah, most of the perennials I've seen are fine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which surprised me a little bit because I, I kind of thought that as cold as it was for as long as it was, we'd see more damage. But I think we were lucky that everything was well hydrated going into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're not seeing as much root damage. But, you know, I, I, there's still a lot of stuff we don't know. Yet. Now, what about the perennials that were evergreen, like, you know, some of the ferns that are evergreen mm-hmm. and the hellebores that's an evergreen? Yeah. And, you know, I mean. They're definitely fine. They're yeah. going to make it. Uh, some, some, I noticed some hellebores, their leaves look great and some not so good. And I think it was more of maybe what kind of care they had. You know, did they get too dry in the summertime? You know, they might have been a little pre-stressed or just in general. The, exposure. the micro, Yeah, the exposure, the microclimate that they were in. Uh, ferns, I've seen some that are partially, you know, the foliage looks good, but not all the foliage mm-hmm. looks good. Whereas a lot of times winter, the foliage looks good the whole time. So but I feel like we're good on that. And hostas, we ought to be great on hostas. Yeah, they were not going to hurt. Yeah, because they're died down. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just coming back from underground anyway. Yeah. So I can't really think of a perennial that was struggled. If we're using talking of the hardy perennials. And Jim, what about the salvias? You know, some of the woody salvias. Uh, I well, mean, I like to cut them back every year. You know, even though like Craig I will will sprout on 
older wood. And I love that salvia. They yeah. Had them blooming in January, you know. But still, they look so much better with the new growth. Clean. If you just go ahead mm-hmm. and cut them down at the ground, you got a lot of roots and that will generate a lot of top growth. So it, to me, it just makes for a cleaner looking garden. You yeah, know, I definitely yeah. agree with doing the salvia, cutting salvia back as well. You know, like uh, Central Texas, we would grow it almost as a shrub mm-hmm. because, you know, it wouldn't have that that winter like we have but yeah here it gets scraggly raggly looking so, so cutting yeah. back letting all that new growth come back and then like wendy like on her asters go ahead and cut those mm-hmm. back anytime get that you know that all that debris out of there and just let these things come back from the root which it already appears that they're doing mm-hmm. so yeah Man, after that hard, hard, hard freeze, and now the things are trying to come out. And that's what we're talking about. So they're coming out now, and then we're going to drop again, possibly. But if it snows, well, that's the thing it that would we, insulate them. Yeah, and, and snowing in cold weather, that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing that scares me the most. We've had, you know, it's, it's January, guys. This is still <laughs> January. February is just, I mean. February is Wednesday. But I, my point is, you know, it's been so mild. Mm-hmm after that flash freeze that we had that things in in, in perennials and and, and things in between are starting to regrow they're starting to flush out yesterday i got a uh, email from the um, encore azalea people Mm -hmm. recommending that if it snows to get out there and get it off the foliage Um, you got to explain that yeah well you know they said if you get a dusting on the ground it's not an issue but if you get start to get heavy snow on them you need to get it off because apparently it will do further damage to the stems and leaves so so you know, they were very tactful in the way that they tell you to care for them but let me ask you obviously this. there's some concern yeah and, and that's after the flash freeze that we had this year yeah of course they didn't say anything about the flash yeah. freeze it's just you're seeing this pop up Mm. from them and it's not something that they normally do normally they send you out things oh we got a new one yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder if encore azaleas overall are less cold hardy Uh, than some of the other just typical azaleas are yes because they're hybridized with well, they're hybridized with the Korean azalea that blooms in the summer. That's what gives you your summer. year-round yeah. blooms. Um, but they are, you know, More the hardiest of them are Zone 6. You know, the re- most of them are 7 or even 8. Um, and I think they were, um, because they've got their blooming later into the year, I think you've got more tender wood and yeah. more mm-hmm. likely to have damage than you would with say a traditional azalea um so it's uh, i think i think this is just kind of something they're putting out there to cover themselves yeah. as a lot of people may see some serious damage in encores because hmm. that year it snowed and then it froze. I, we didn't seem to have problems with the encore. Snow then. was great. You know, by having six inches of snow on the ground, you protected. Mm-hmm. The only thing you got was some top burn yeah. above it. Uh, but this is this has been different this year. So yeah, okay. so they're referring to this. Year. <coughs> well, but it's already passed, though. We can't yeah. sweep them off because we already you know happened already. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And you know, when encores. I mean, when they first came out, I'm thinking, okay, this is great because we finally have an azalea that's going to bloom more than that one time in the spring, you know? And then I was thinking, okay, well, I haven't really made up my mind on, on course. This is way back when because 
it's unnatural for me to see azaleas blooming in the summer and then again in the fall. But I'm thinking, okay, so what? What if it is unnatural right. looking? It doesn't mean that I still can't accept just, the fact that there are azaleas out there that bloom more than one time. So I, I've gotten to the point now where, and there's so many different varieties out there on the market. Y'all, I, I really like them mm-hmm. now. Now, some varieties I like more than others. Some of them that have the darker, more green foliage. Yeah, I like those. I like more stems. than others. Mm-hmm. I like the, and the ones that have the stem color. Yeah, you know, there's always been an issue with monarch and... Um, uh, star, is it now, Starlight, Mark? the spotted white and purple, mm-hmm. with trouble with the trunk splitting mm-hmm. in okay. cold weather. It, and that's been true on the coast. They've had more difficulty mm-hmm. growing those than they have uh, the rest of the, the series. So uh, it's, a, you know, it's an opportunity for you to redo your landscape. Yeah. Maybe. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right, we have Tricia. So hang on a minute. We're going to go to the break. Call us 901 260 Good morning, gardeners. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. So last week I was talking about um, how people came up with names for shrubs and things. So I've got that on our agenda today. <laughs> but right now we're going to go to Tricia from Hernando. Good morning. You're in the Mid-South Garden. Good morning. Hey, Trish. Good morning to you. <laughs> Listen, I have been listening to y'all for the last several weeks, especially since we had that you know, that terrible weather, oh, yeah. and I just have a few concerns, and I realize that uh, you may have already addressed a few of these different types of plants, but yes, I just wanted to see, because my, my yard is just looking terrible. No, I know. Um, about the only thing that looks good are my autumn ferns. <laughs> um, I have a 45-year-old boxwood that has never st- looked stressed at all, and it's dropping leaves, and... Mm-hmm. Then um, my dwarf mondo grass, which I love, and I was planning on dividing it and moving it around a lot because it just really needs to be, you know, tended to, is looking really bad. I cut off a lot of the, it's looking white and brown, you know, so I cut the dead off, but I don't know what else I need to do. I just, I'm afraid to to do anything with it at this point. Yeah, But I need it for borders. That's right. So. Yeah, I would. Have, what you did is good, and uh, best thing you can do is just wait and see, and hopefully it's going to come back from the the roots. Yeah, we were talking about dwarf mondo a while ago, Trish, and how you know oh, just oh, you just like okay. monkey grass, how okay. it's just mm-hmm. you know it's so much burnt foliage out there. It looks horrible. In fact, it looks dead. But we're yeah, pretty sure yeah. that the crown and the root system is still very viable. It should be. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, but. Going in there and just cleaning them up, cutting that stuff, that brown and whitish tissue off of there is absolutely the best thing you can do now. And then we're going to have to just kind of be patient, wait and see if we start seeing new growth. And I really think we will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, that dwarf, dwarf Mondo's, a, it's a tough little yeah. ground cover. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And it's expensive. Oh, right. it's it horribly is. expensive. Man, used to you not. want to replace it, so I didn't want to have to do that. No. Right, right. You have to take a loan out for ground now, cover. The boxwood, guys, I've seen where uh, a lot of the newest growth on boxwoods, you know, did turn brown. And, of course, they're falling off the boxwoods. I've got like five of them, Trish, around a bay window. And it was just the youngest, uh-huh. the most tender growth that was really frozen. Uh, you still should see, I hope you do see, uh, still a lot of green growth on those boxwoods. And it was just that newest tissue that was really affected. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I've quite a bit of 
believe in that I yeah, I think we're uh, losing. We're losing um, the signal. But but also, Trish had yeah. mentioned azaleas, and and I'm telling you, every azalea that I've seen looks like toast. I'm telling you. Uh huh. And Trish, I mean, and there again, on all the azaleas that I've seen, the damage was confined to the foliage of the plant. If you go out there and give it the old scratch test and scratch those uh, limbs. Every azalea that I've scratched is still good and green up under there, which is a great sign. They should flush right back out, okay? Yeah. What do you think okay. about the boxwoods, Jim? Well, I think they're extremely cold-hardy. Yeah. So I think most of what you're seeing is just winter berm. Because we tend to shear them and new growth comes out a little late in the season, Right, it's full of moisture. It didn't have time to harden off, and you're seeing browning as that foliage froze. But I think all you're going to end up needing to do is maybe, you know, cutting an inch back or so or just leaving it alone, and you're going to see new growth flush around it. Yeah. Well, when should I put – I usually put holly tone right. around it. No, don't. No, 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 no. You're wrong fertilizer. Boxwoods yeah. don't oh, like holly tone. Okay. Use the plant tone. Use yeah. plant tone. Okay, well, I meant, I meant plant tone. Okay. Yeah. All right. Holly tone. Yeah, yeah, I do have plant tone. I can okay. around my Check your pH too. also. You want the pH okay. to be six and a half or a little higher on your boxwood, okay? Which okay. is ten okay. times more less acidic than azaleas. Uh, but liming okay. is critical. Make sure that there's no organic matter sticking up inside the the crotch of the plant. Blow that out with a blower. No bark, no mulch touching the trunk. Um, if you have new growth come out and it looks green, then we know all it is is winter damage. If uh-huh. the new growth comes out and it's brown, then you've got a fungal issue. Uh, so, okay. and we'll we can address that if that's happened. But I think you're going to see just plenty of new growth come out, and it'll be fine. So, Trish can go out there at any point, and typically speaking, without, I mean, ideally get a pH test run in that around those uh, boxwoods because you do want that pH up around six and a half. But a lot of people, Trish, every year, they'll just sprinkle a little uh, lime around every every boxwood that they have. And then they'll come back right on top of that and sprinkle some plant tone or milorganite, either one of those two products, which are great organic, non-burning products. And you can do that anytime, Trish. Okay. Okay. You can do it, any, you well, can do it today to if you want more. to. <laughs> well, a little cold out there. <laughs> and no sun either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Thanks for the and call. Okay, bye-bye. I'm sorry, Trish. I didn't mean to catch you off there. Yeah, thanks for the call. Thanks, Trish. Um, yep, good questions. Uh, fertilization, long as you're just using some type of natural compost product, that you'll be fine. Yeah, and, and Trish is like everybody else. Uh, I mean, she's got this probably beautiful landscape, and then all of a sudden after this flash freeze, I mean, so much of that stuff out there looks horrible. And, of course, she's concerned. And like she even mentioned, you know, Dwarf Mondo. You know, Dwarf Mondo, you know, the problem is it comes 32 plants in a flat, and that sounds like a lot. But when you start putting those things out, you're not getting a big a lot of coverage out of 32 little 3-inch pots yeah. of Dwarf Mondo. And the last thing you want to do is go out there and start having to replace all oh, of this yeah. stuff. I mean, just, you're, you're almost planting them like 2 to 4 inches apart. Exactly. So know, they're, they're, they're kind of slow, but and we're not doing them a foot apart because it would take a long time for them to cover 
I think for me, I do them about six inches apart, but think how many. So that's 32 plants. You're not doing 32 square feet. You're doing like 16, 17 Right, so that's my point. You know, you're putting a whole bunch of those down in a pretty small area, and it can get really expensive if you start losing these ground covers. But in Tricia's case, I really think that the Dwarf Mondo is going to be fine. I would go in there with a pair of sharp scissors or whatever and clean them up as best I could. Now, if it's a huge bed, you might have to get a weed eater or something else to do it on a larger scale. Boxwoods, I think they're going to be perfectly fine. Like Jim was saying, you know, make sure that mulch is not into the crotch of those boxwoods. We see that all the time. Light layer of mulch, they don't like a heavy layer of mulch uh, either. So get a bit of, you know, some lime, some fertilizer around those. They should flush out just fine. And the azaleas, like we've mentioned so many different times, they look bad, but I think they're going to be okay also. Okay. And uh, we're speaking of the... uh, tell you about the henry garnet itia so so that one didn't have much trouble in the winter i don't think that had a problem at all but that name came from um mary gibson you know there's henry. a little henry out there also yes little which henry is the dwarf Atea and henry garnet <coughs> itia this one uh was named after mary G- gibson henry and uh she was born oh, no, 18 mary gibson, gibson henry, henry yeah. in the in the the little Henry or the uh, the uh, Henry Garnet yes. Atia, yeah, was named after her. Uh, she was born in like 1894. Her grandfather and her great grandfather were big in the horticultural industry, did a lot of stuff, and contributed a lot of money, and was well off. And her passion also was like horticultural and looking and finding plants and things like that. So much to she had a car. So this would have been in like 1925 or so that she had a car built for her that had um, an attic over the roof. <laughs> hold <laughs> or, on. We, you uh, said yes, a, hold on. Hold. You said a car. Yeah, a car. It was a rooftop attic to carry the equipment. And then she had an insulated and vented department for her plants. She also had a bookcase and a uh, electricity lit desk. In her car. To There's travel. no way. I don't yeah. believe a word of that. I have to uh, look at it. But, you know, I was looking at some old-time pictures where where they've got this car and they've got the uh, tent attached to the car like, like we have now. But they were doing it, you know, back then, too. So I could see maybe a... Uh, I mean, a uh, car that's got of all, all this stuff in that's it. I mean, cool. it may look kind of, maybe kind of bizarre. But so um, she found the uh, Henry Garnet Atia in Georgia in like 1954. And the Henry Foundation would pass seeds around and plants around and things like that. And it ended up at the Scott Arboretum. Where Durr, who mm-hmm. we know Durr, Michael Durr, and, yeah, yeah. Michael Durr does all the plant books and stuff like that. He saw it at the uh, Scott <coughs> Arboretum in 1982, and they had suggested to him that it should be named and introduced, which, as we know, it oh, has be Durr. I didn't know that's where that name came yeah, from. Yeah. But if you want a plant that is bulletproof, that's one. I that's mean, for that sure. idea. I mean. They're neat plants. I mean, they're really pretty when they're blooming, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and and know, their fall color's good, yeah, but, but then... <laughs> well, and they like to move around. I mean, they can spread, but I mean, they are—they truly are one of the toughest plants mm-hmm. you can get your hands on. They'll even grow in some pretty wet, boggy areas right. also, Veda. So if you're looking for a plant that is bulletproof, it does have a beautiful little mm-hmm. what, white bloom. Yeah, a little white long um, bloom on it. In the spring. Um, in the winter, it has some red stems, really. I know, I know that 
it can take definitely wet conditions, so it spreads more in the wet conditions. And if the conditions are drier, it doesn't seem to spread a lot. And isn't that what the little Henry doesn't? It, it's just more, that more compact. Yeah, yeah, but it's still aggressive. I had to remove yeah. them from my garden because it just overtook it. Well, and that was going to be my next question, Jim. I'm sure because I think Jim's grown everything mm-hmm. in his landscape. It's you know at one yeah. point in time. Have you ever grown any Atea? No, my garden was it's never been big enough to yeah. grow Atea, and yeah. I knew that. So I thought I would try. Uh, I planted two little Henrys, um, and one was in for uh, about three years, mm-hmm. and then I took it out. Uh, and then the other one was in about probably eight years, and then it yeah. just got too big and mm-hmm. overpowering everything. And so, it, I mean, not just so big, that, but it was moving. It yeah, getting, it, as it far as height-wise, it was on yeah. the top of the fence, about six feet or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just, you know, it would get four or five inches wider every year. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that would be because new stems were coming and out. And when space throughout. is precious, and you, yes. sometimes you got to take that you stuff You mentioned up. something a minute ago about cars. Did you realize that in 1895 there were only Two cars registered in the state of Ohio, and they happen to run into each other. Oh, no! (laughs) I love it. What's the luck of that? (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all, we'll be right back. Good morning, gardeners. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Glad y'all can be with us today. We're going over the weather forecast to see what we need to be doing in the garden this week. You may see something about snow later well, on. Not today, but not this weekend. Well, it's like first I saw it was really, really cold, and then I heard it's going to be cold, and then it's not, then it is. I mean, well, it's definitely going to rain or snow, one or the other. But if it's 80% chance, does that mean it's really 20% chance? 20% chance <laughs> where you're not going to see it. Now, when is that? Is that latter part of this week? or when well, yeah. looking at here on Wednesday, they're showing... Um, well, Tuesday starts at 38 degrees for a high, 31 for a low, mm-hmm. and a 62% chance. I don't know how they get that. Yeah, uh, Of precipitation. Then the next day, it's going to be 43 as a high and 37 with an 88% chance. So that means oh, nothing. Oh, yours is funny. Mine's so rounded off. <laughs> yeah, so that'll wash it off, whatever it is. Yeah, so, so we might just see a pretty snow coming but down. But we've got, you know, we got a lot of frost and freeze temperatures for the next as far out as I can see here. Okay. All right, Jim, you were, were the young lady was asking about boxwoods a while ago, and you mentioned pH. Uh-huh. Uh, and we just for a second want to explain to people how important is pH and why is it important. And the pH, of course, is the measurement of either acidity or uh, al- al- what alkalinity, alkalinity yeah. in the soil. So Most everything. Why is that important? Most though? all plants like a acidic to very acidic soil. Even boxwoods like 6.5. Seven's neutral. Above that is alkaline. And there are some things, some grasses that like that and a few oddball plants. But around here, for the most part. For around here, what we grow as ornamentals, the vast majority of them like a pH around 5.5 to 6. Whereas we have, you know, boxwoods, boxwood, there's no (laughs) boxwoods. Um, boxwood like, like them geeses, yeah. <laughs> uh, boxwood like a pH of about six point five, uh, and what that does is it makes the the nutrients available to the plant in the correct amount. Mm-hmm. In case 
as the pH goes up and down, certain nutrients become either locked up or more freely available. Mm-hmm. And plants have evolved to that sort of nutrient level. Yes. So if you're growing something, although they may grow there and you know tolerate it, no, they will never be as prolific as they can right. be. You're unless that pH is where it should be. You know, it's like in fact somebody asked about blueberries on this. Uh, uh, just this week, and the pH on those needs to be five or even slightly below, 4. which is 0. very 5. acidic. Very acidic. So you don't want a, a pH really above five around the blueberries. That's about right. Yeah. yeah, I mean five and a half you can live with. It'll live. It'll okay. grow. It'll grow at six and a half. It yeah. just doesn't flourish. But you would rather see five and a half than six and a half around yeah. blueberries, for Absolutely. example. Absolutely. So it's always a good idea, and you know, I so for under 30 bucks you can buy one of these inexpensive ph meters yeah. last you forever i've got one i've had for 40 years yeah and as long as you don't try to push it into concrete as yeah. long as the soil's moist it'll last forever okay all right so, so but but you're saying jim some plants you know in in my mind is i think it's always good to go out there and put a little lime around them every year because naturally don't our soils turn acidic on us for the they, most part they do yeah most of that has to do with rain because when rain falls it becomes acidic yeah mixes with carbon dioxide forms carbolic acid yeah. and you know and that's uh, what acidifies yeah right so you when rainwater typically is about 5.6 but it takes a long time to do that it doesn't happen okay? overnight right the other thing you face, particularly, you know, with things like uh, clematis, which mm-hmm. is, I checked this week to make clematis, sure. Clematis, clematis. Yep, yeah. clemat, clematis is the <laughs> correct pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah. I like clematis because it's got kind of southern dog. Right. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Me too. But, but things like clematis. But those, you know, they the roses. Need, they need to be pH of that. Most of your perennials need to be that. But particularly out at your mailbox where, you know, every dog that walks by. Yeah. Uh, wants to mark that spot, yeah. you know, and conceivably, if you got two people walking by your mailbox, uh, you know, every With day, dog, yeah. uh, you just got urine put on it seven hundred times a year, yeah. and so it's going to seriously affect the pH. So you want to try to go out there and, and keep some lime around those. Okay, and I know Jamie's on the phone. Jamie, hang on for two seconds. But things like just, and this is just a, a small, in a nutshell, boxwoods. You know, that's why we typically see people liming their boxwoods, if not every year, every other year. But a lot of people do it every year. Before the advent of the little cheap meter, we used to tell people to do them every other year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just right. it's because you test it and so, it still says do it every year, so, every other year. So, so your lawn, you know, yeah. most lawn, you know, Bermudas and Zoysias and Fescues, mm-hmm. you know, they want that pH up around six and a half. So we're typically having to lime our lawn right. to keep it up. Well, like the whole deal with the pH, too, is... Um, like when I was in Central Texas, it was real alkaline, which means it ties up the iron. Right. And so that's where we'd have the yellow foliage. So when the pH is not proper for certain plants that need proper or certain you can, nutrition. You can see some, pro- you can see some problems yeah, out there. the pH locks so pH it up. So pH is important, is my point. Right. We're just not saying just change your pH, but the reason why you change it is so the nutrients become available to the plant. For example, if you have a, I'm going to go back to a, a lawn where you have grass, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're doing everything just right. You know, it gets enough light. You're keeping the right amount of moisture on it. You're feeding it every six weeks. You're doing, cutting it the way it should be cut. But it's still just not, you know, as productive and green as it should. Yeah. Go out there and check that pH. A lot of times that thing's way too acidic. You put that lime down. Now the, you raise mm-hmm. the pH. 
and the soil can release those nutrients that the grass needs. Yeah, you know, I, I fired my last lawn service because, you know, although they're charging me for liming every year, I yeah. checked the pH in a number of places, and it was 5.6 or lower. How can that be? Right, right. which means they're not putting enough lime. It also means they're not checking it. They're yeah. just doing yeah. it. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. So check your pH. I think that's one of the things that y'all can do that alleviates a lot of problems. Like you, that's one of the things that we used to not ask was, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do I that? I always do that. And, ask I mean, them, like hey, the man, long, you, need to, you yeah, need to check that a pH. A while back, I wasn't, you know, understanding how, I mean, a while back, how much the pH would make a difference in making plants. And usually, let me say this, better. you know, usually pH is not a live or die situation. Okay. Mm-hmm. For, like for like Jim was saying, well, <laughs> I mean, if you've got a blueberry mm-hmm. that really wants that soil very acidic, yeah. and you've got it in a very, you know, more alkaline type soil, typically it won't kill the blueberry. Yeah. Um, very tolerant. Yeah. But same mm-hmm. thing with the rose. You know, if you've got a rose that's in very acidic soil and not up, you know, around six and a half where it should be, typically it won't kill the rose. Mm-hmm. But that rose and that blueberry are never going to be as proficient as they, mm-hmm. as they can, yeah. ever. Just because of the pH. Right. Yeah. And so often here we see people plant in boxwood and azaleas in the same bed. I got to say yeah. boxwoods, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but then, you know, your boss corrected me on that first time. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they're just not compatible plants for the same bed. That's right. You know, I see them planted together all the time. Boxwoods and azaleas planted all the time, which means if that is the case, you'll go out there and selectively sprinkle the lime just around the boxwood, not in the whole bed because you don't need to put it around the azaleas. I know. I would tell tell the guys, okay, on this, only put a lime on this half. Yeah. And then the azaleas that were next to it, I would go, okay, you can do your holly tone on that half. But where these roots are crossing over, we're not going to do any pH adjusting. And then your vegetable garden, and I know, Jamie, we're going to wait and get you at the next break. But I know on a vegetable garden also, you know, you want that pH up around six and a half. I mean, so that's why you see so many people every year liming that garden plot and liming those other type of plants out there that they know they need that pH you know, around six and a half. Six two to six eight is what they say. Six and a half is really a target that I go for. So it it's it is a big deal, guys, to get that pH up and keep it up to where it needs to be. Now the same thing is a big deal, like we just said, not to go out there and lime everything in your yard. A lot of these plants want the soil more acidic. Jim mentioned uh, blueberries, for example. Hollies, dogwoods, you know, uh azaleas, rhododendrons, those type of plants. They want that soil more acidic. So we've got to know our landscape, and we really need to know what the pH should be around these different types of plants. Mm-hmm. Well, you can take um, soil to local mm-hmm. garden centers, and they can test the pH also. It's not an expensive thing to do, and we're not trying to measure it to the oh, yeah. degree. We're just needing give you a good yeah. idea of whether you need to put lime down or not. And I know we've got to go to a break, and Jamie, hang on just a second. But when lime, typically when people buy lime, they're buying a pelletized lime. And then also, remember, guys, there's also a fast lime mm-hmm. that breaks down. It's pelletized also, but it breaks down faster than just your old-fashioned pelletized lime. So liming is an easy thing to do. All right, y'all, we're going to take a break. Give us a call, 901-260-5926. <laughs>
Good morning, gardeners. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. We have Jamie, the Master Gardener, with us this morning. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for calling in. How have you been this week? Good morning. Hey, Jamie. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking, we always call Jamie, Jamie the Master Gardener. Right. <laughs> I know. It's, I don't know how that started, but that's what we say. I think because, Jamie, when you first started getting to know us and all, and I think one of the things you were talking about was the uh, tomato contest, and that's how Kenneth and I were talking about, you know, Jamie the, you know, the, the Master, Master Gardener. Gardener. <laughs> and then we just stuck with it. <laughs> but good morning to you, Jamie. Good morning. I, 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 y'all are doing me a favor there. Uh, with that master gardener thing, but I appreciate it. But anyway, looking forward to seeing y'all last week and next week, and uh, bringing our new president down to meet you. And this is uh, what next weekend, isn't it? Yes, next Saturday. Next Saturday, and and I had it written down. Now that is the new president of the Memphis area master gardeners, and right. I think that is uh, is it Jan, Jan Dickey, Jan Dickey. Okay. And, and and I've heard nothing but wonderful things about her. And of course, we'll um, we'll have to grill her pretty good just to mm-hmm. see how you know if that holds up. <laughs> really, and we'll be talking a lot about the Memphis Area Master Gardener presents, which will be the 18th of uh, February, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll have two great speakers there. And this, by the way, this is all goes for uh, the benefit of the Botanic Garden. So. Anyway, it's it's a great thing, and uh, we we love to get involved in it. And and Miss uh, Doctor Deli Kelly mm-hmm. and Carol Reeves will be their, their guest speakers, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're both great speakers. And uh, it's well worth. I think it's ten dollars to get in. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you more about it next week when we get get down there. Well, that's going to be great, Jamie. We can't wait to get y'all in here and uh, you know introduce uh, Miss Jan. Uh, like I said, the new president of the uh, Memphis Area Master Gardeners. So, yeah, man, that is a, that's a great thing. Absolutely. Can't wait to see you, honestly. Okay. Well, you guys be safe, and thank you, and, be, and uh, take care. Thank All you, right, Jamie. Jamie. Thanks for giving thanks us a call. Jamie, the Master Gardener. Jamie, the Master Gardener. You'll have to look at their uh, <laughs> website. It's got information on garden talks and all that. I didn't know the, the Bartlett Garden Talks was under the Master Gardener. Oh, yeah umbrella mm-hmm. so that's great because there's a lot of stuff that goes on at yeah the in fact Library. the one that's today is on pruning so oh, there's uh, they've already started some oh they started mm-hmm. them back in january this yeah. is like maybe the fourth one and this is at the bartlett library uh-huh. gym okay I think at 2 30 double check that but right. um yeah they were uh, particularly since we're going to be doing some pruning this year. If you're not sure what to do, this would be a good uh, program to go to. You're right. It is at 2 30. And that's yeah. the, the Bartlett Library. And you and what yeah. what web page did you go on, Veda? Master to, Gardeners. Memphis Master Gardeners. Yeah. Just just type that in and you can mm-hmm. look at all the events, the calendar yeah. of events and uh you know, you mentioned the tomato contest. Mm-hmm. You know, Jamie came to me years ago and he said, Kenny, he said, you know, we're thinking about doing a tomato contest. Did he say tomato or tomato? Tomato. And, <laughs> and I was like, you know, if there's one thing that gets people riled up, it is a dang tomato, I'm telling you. And, you know, we were talking about how people love to brag about, you know, they've got the best tomato than anybody else. And I told the story, and I've told it before, where there's a gentleman that lives down in Mississippi. And he would come up to Memphis uh, for whatever reason, but he would always stop into the garden center. He'd walk in, and he's, all right, Kenny, what's the new secret tomato this year and i'm going there's no new secret tomato what do you mean 
So he would always plant tomatoes, and he always had a bet with someone else that lives down there who would have the best tomato. So he would say, all right, all right, what's the secret then of how mm-hmm. growing the best tomato? And it's like, there's no secret out there. <laughs> you know, so it was one of those. Depends on whether or not you're uh-huh. growing big tomatoes. They believe there is a big secret. So, like, <laughs> what do you mean, Jim? Explain well, on that. Okay, I'll give you an example. Many years ago, uh, Chris Gang called me, and I may have told this story. And but she, she used to write me. the commercial appeal. Yeah, she was wanting to talk to somebody about tomatoes. So I gave her the name of a guy that was at our church uh, who grew lots of tomatoes, you know. Uh, and so anyway, and you probably called, had some of those tomatoes that he grew. Uh, well, probably not. Uh, he and I weren't that close. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. see, see, that was your so, problem. I want to make sure I made friends with this guy. Yeah. No. Uh, so anyway, she called him, and he was quite rude to her. Would not tell her anything. So I'm not telling you my secrets about how to grow a tomato. That is unbelievable. You know? Yeah, and that was kind of why I wasn't that close to him. Well, <laughs> well, in late February, we're going to have uh, Ted Addison come in. He's the gentleman that won a lot of the awards mm-hmm. uh, from last year's tomato contest. Is he really going to give us a secret? Well, and that's what we talked about. We're going to grill him. I mean, we'll have the heat Let's lamp on him, you know, the smoke and everything. Interrogate. Oh, yeah. yes. See if and, we can put it together. But it's one of those things. I think we'll, they give up most of the information, Veda. I don't know if they always give it all up, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it, it's it's all fun, and you know, no, I mean, I can't tell you anybody that loves tomatoes that doesn't want a, a, a nice tomato that they grow themselves. Case to point, you know, Gina, she buys these tomatoes at the uh, at the grocery store this time of year, and they look okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're red, and they kind of look like a tomato, and they got a little <laughs> label on them that says tomato, mm-hmm. right? Slice these things up, put them in a salad, and I mean, <laughs> it has no taste whatsoever. But That's they some, sure ship well. They ship yeah. great, Jim. <laughs> and they look and great they look on, good the shelf. When they're on the shelf. Yeah. So I cannot wait until we start growing some homegrown tomatoes. But Ted Addison, we'll have to see what, uh, if he has any secrets, uh, if he'll let us know what they are about growing tomatoes, because he actually won a lot of the the entries when it came to the tomato contest this past year. So that would be a lot of fun also. Well, the color of the year, the Pantone color of the year, apparently there's, depends on some people, everybody has a different color of the year, it seems like now. <laughs> but the Pantone color of the year is Viva Magenta. I read that. Did you? Yeah, and it was like, it was inspired because of nature, expressive, and, and all of that. And the color originally comes from a beetle. Is how they, you know, got the color Viva Magenta. But let's see, the we can use plants like well, first Rose of all, Sharon explain to me what magenta is—a purplish, bluish. It's a magenta is like a, a red, in between a red and a blue. Yeah, <laughs> can you can you have a color well, between red and blue? It's but it's it kind of a like purplish to me. to me, kind of a purplish looks, hue. Uh, yeah, I just pulled up Viva Magenta yeah. on my phone here. Which color do you get? Let me see. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. So what is that? Almost burgundy, burgundy blue. Well, they're saying English. Well, I'd call it a reddish pink. Yeah, okay. That's well, there you better. go. Instead yeah, of a purple. I don't know why I see some blue in that. And I would, I would say that this is not a color that I would. Uh, I know. Buy a container. Um, yes, exactly. That's what. Um, because remember last year, I think the color was terracotta. Well, wait, you're saying you wouldn't buy a container in that color? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would not. I know. Uh, one of the guys at work, when I was telling about that, he goes, well, that's surely not pottery, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, but, you know, it's plants. So if we want a Viva, Viva Magenta, um, Bougainvillea, 
chrysanthemum, butterfly bush, zinnia, English mm-hmm. rose. You know, yeah. it's going to be pretty easy. It seems to do. But I think people that. do that anyway. You know, they yeah. you know that kind of tend to those reddish colors. Uh, you know, on a on a yearly basis, whether it's mm-hmm. annuals, perennial shrubs, whatever yeah. you're talking about, they that bloom. And that to me, that's just a you know a matter of, I guess opinion mm-hmm. on whether you like those colors right. or not so yeah. i mean i hear what you're saying i mean they've got to have a color of well, the year you know everybody has hobbies and i know a lot of people that decorate and all like to take uh the hop the color of the year you know just to have a goal or make something different happen it, like if you're tired of planting the same thing over and over like for me i don't want to have impatience in the same spot every year because i like to have a different looking garden see Even, i don't mind impatience in the same spot every yeah. year because they look great every I year know, there's that too but but i always want to have a different garden every year and so i think that, that's that's probably better than my i don't know because there's that that classic look that you know you know it's going to look good and, and everybody's different it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I do love impatience, though. They're still my favorite. Yeah, I have to say they're my favorite shade. And remember, plant. y'all, years ago, and I know we got to go to a break here pretty soon. Remember years ago, when I say years ago, it might have been, what, eight or eight or ten years ago now, when Downey Mildew was just eating up every oh, yeah. impatient that was oh, in gosh, Shelby County. Eight or ten years ago? It's, it's probably, been longer than that. You think it has? Yeah. And it was, it was so heartbreaking because mm-hmm. everybody and their mother plants and patients more yeah. or less in the shade for an annual color, yeah. right? And downy mildew, and I've never seen it before mm-hmm, like this, same. and I've never seen it since yeah. like that, was decimating every impatient in Shelby County. And then the problem with that was, because they, and they all died, right? Mm-hmm. Then the next year, and the, even the year and the year after that, people were like, hang on, if I plant impatients again, am I going to get downy mildew yeah. again? Right. And thank God it didn't happen, but... Who knows, man? Yeah. What's out there lurking? Where do you think it came from, Jim? We'll talk about that. I can tell you where it came from. I thought you could. We'll talk about that on the next hour, so y'all hang on. We'll be right back. The garden help you need. Now, Mid-South Gardening on the Mighty 990, powered by Palladio Home and Garden, with your hosts, Veda Vance, Kenneth Mabry, and Jim Crowder. Good morning, Mid-South Gardeners, and welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Glad y'all can be with us. This is our third hour, and we're getting wound up. Uh, so <laughs> No, they've been wound up since the get-go. Yeah. <laughs> So um, we were talking about downy mildew well, that um, we had gotten on the impatience a number of years, years ago, back. And, yeah. and you know, and it's something that I'd never seen before, and it's something I'd never seen since, Jim. So, what was the deal with that? Yeah, well, the vast <laughs> majority of starter plants are started in the Caribbean, uh, Costa Rica, and some of those countries. We're talking about like on impatience. Yeah. Yes, I did not know that. Yeah, and and they produce millions upon millions that are then sent out. And trays of 144 or 288 little bitty cuttings. little tiny things just barely you know up one and little leaflet pretty much yeah. and those go to the growers local growers and so forth and the big well, mass growers too this yeah. particular instance it got this grower got infected uh, and so he sent them all over the country so I that mean, was more of a cultural thing than it was 
well, environmental. Yeah, somehow the downy mildew got into his facility, uh, and he sent it all over the country, not just to a certain area. Because, I mean, we're talking about a company that's got acres upon acres upon acres of, of glass houses there where they produce these things. Wow. So, anyway, it got out, and then when it was planted, it spread so quickly because of, you know, it likes the cool, moist temperature that we have in the spring. And um, this particular downy mildew uh, produces two types of spores. One that's windblown. And that's how the stuff was spreading? That's why it spread so quickly to other areas where people were having them come up from seed Mm. from uninfected, but they got infected. Still got it, right. Uh, But it also produces a spore that's in the stem that can persist in the soil up to 10 years or so. Right. So that was one of the fears we had, that it was going to continue to be a problem for 10 years. Year after year. Uh, But I think we got lucky in the next year. We and everybody was scared of them. They didn't want to plant them again because, oh, we're going to get it again. I remember that. People were were asking, and a lot of people were hesitant about planting impatience that next year. But a lot of people didn't because they saw what happened the year before. Growers didn't grow them, you uh, know, I remember because, that. Yeah. so because they didn't feel like they were going to have a market on. So we interrupted that cycle. You know, we talk about how we create micro environments, like with rosette. We planted so many drift roses, or you know, it's like Knock having out. one cotton plant. You don't get a boll weevil, but you plant a field full of them, and you can't. Exactly. So I think we broke the cycle by not having any of that, and so we fairly quickly got rid of it as uh, an issue. Thank goodness. Yeah. You know. Right. So, Good Lord, because, I mean, you know, like you're saying, Jim and Betty, you used to always say, you know, even when you were landscaping, if somebody had a backyard, they got a back fence back there, you don't put the same plant from one end all the way down to the other. You can. Right. But if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. then they're all susceptible. Yeah, kind of like this year when we planted like 30 distilliums in one area, <laughs> yeah. and then we had the bad weather, so you lost everything. Yeah, so... Uh, it's always good to mix your plants up. Yeah, well, you know that's a lot of people ask why I don't. My garden looks pretty good, and it's because I have a very diverse garden. Yeah, you know, I, I do all. Last year, I sprayed one thing. The Japanese beetles got on my Sir Harry Lauder's walking stick, mm-hmm. and that was the only thing I sprayed. I sprayed. Oh, no, they got on the walking stick. They did. They got on that's, it and that just really played havoc on it. Mm-hmm. So I did spray it, and it was just a little squirt bottle. Went out yeah. there and took care of them. Um, and we're going to have Japanese beetles again. We're going to have them every year from here on out. I've got, you know, I have miniature roses that are in an elevated planter there. Never spray any fungicide on them because they get mm-hmm. good air movement through them. We prune them properly. Uh, Carol prunes them properly. Let me correct that statement <laughs> <laughs> so, before I go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just so many different plants. I don't have an environment suitable for most things to to become an issue. Mm-hmm. That makes Good sense. Lord. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. case to point, remember the old, let's say, red tip photinas, for mm-hmm. example. People would plant red tip photinas as a as a natural barrier. Leland cypress, they do the same thing. But photinas, I remember back in the day where they were beautiful. And then, of course, endosporium leaf spot started just running rampant. And now you hardly see any red tip photinas. But it was because, like Jim was saying about the rose rosette. Instead of seeing just a couple roses here in Memphis, you know, you would see thousands. Yeah. So the, the host plant was grossly overplanted. Mm-hmm. Right. And we see that quite often. Yeah, it's kind of like all the plants that we see planted by the city 
um, and well, you know, they're kind of upgrading some of the plants in terms of making them a little more native, a little more hardy. But it's almost like you don't want to plant what's planted all over the city because mm. you're just adding to the monoculture of the, mm-hmm. the whole thing. So, yeah, like Jim was saying, people ask how his garden looks good all year round. And it is a diversity because they're always looking at what's happening in the season. Yeah, in and of course, yard. I'm only showing them the pretty stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the good pictures. Yeah, yeah. So. We had a couple of texters, uh, Ben Dieter, who is actually a KWAM uh, news anchor right morning. here on this station. Morning, Ben. Uh, on, on the morning, he said, good morning, friends. Uh, sounds good. So, Ben, we appreciate you tuning in. And you can always listen to Ben Monday through Friday right here at mm-hmm. KWAM Radio early in the morning. And then uh, we've got John Russell who texted in on the Mighty 990 Facebook page and said, how should I control chickweed? Or is it a natural <laughs> ground cover? Well, like for me, I'm saying that just harvest it and use it in your salad. <laughs> use it for spring. Well, first of use all, use it in your salad and then it'll die out when it's hot. <laughs> let's, let's explain what chickweed is. Yeah, it's a nice edible ground cover well it, it is a it's a broadleaf weed i mean it's got a little broadleaf on it uh, you know beautiful green foliage like veda said loves to put in a salad but it is a a broadleaf weed that also likes cool temperatures it comes up early in the year uh, it's up now, as yeah, a matter of fact. Really, it comes up late in the year. Well, depending on how you look <laughs> yeah. at it, Jim. Yeah. So, but uh, if you've got chickweed growing, uh, let's say you got chickweed growing in your lawn, for example, and you have a Bermuda or zoysia lawn, uh, a broadleaf weed killer, John, will get rid of chickweed. Uh, and there's one in particular that I like. It's the Fertilone Weed Free Zone uh, and it only has to be above 45 degrees for that product mm-hmm. to work. That's why I like that product. Um, so spray them with a, a broadleaf weed killer uh, will kill chickweed because, mm-hmm. there again, it is classified as a broadleaf weed. You know, chickweed's easy to pull, and it's so satisfying mm. to pull that mm. out. It was, to me, it's satisfying to pull any mm. weed out. Yeah. Remember what Kenneth's recommending is for turf. For turf, I said, okay. Bermuda's and Zoysia. Not for, not for flower beds. And then you're, you're reading my mind. And if you have chickweed growing in a bed, then you have a couple of options also. I mean, you can always go out there and just, you know, dig it out, pull it out, and come back and put a pre-emergent down to keep the seed from coming back. Or you can go in there and spot treat with a Roundup-type product. And whether that's burnout, Roundup, you know, uh, th- this year we're selling uh, sea salt, you know, times mm-hmm. 10 uh, as a spot treat. So, I mean, there are different products that you can selectively spray in a bed to kill that chickweed. But... In the lawn, John, uh, if that's where it is, uh, that weed-free zone does a good job in knocking that stuff out. And, of course, if your pre-emerge is put down in preferably September and December, would control that from ever coming up. So that would that's a mm-hmm. plus. Right. Uh, and, you know, of course, you can spot spray it with, like, glyphosate, Roundup, mm-hmm. kills all. Mm-hmm. clean up all the other yeah. products. And the vinegar, the horticulture yeah. vinegar, and yeah. you said the sea salt. Then, and there's and burnout, other you know. options. So, yeah. that means, so, but there's, you can spot treat it, or if you've got a good bit of it, though, I like to go ahead and use that broadleaf weed killer that's going to kill just the broadleaf weeds. And what do we think about using a Roundup-type product? Because I like to spot treat anyway if I'm using Roundup. I don't ever encourage someone to go out there and spray their whole yard that looks dormant mm-hmm. that might not be completely dormant. So spot treating, and what about um, using Roundup Gym and Veda now as a spot treat, it, do you think you're still going to get any damage on dormant-looking Bermuda or Zoysia with Roundup? I think Roundup? you're likely to. Yeah. Because yeah. at first— I would only we were, use it in flower beds. Yeah, only use it in flower beds, yeah. yeah. 
And not and don't yeah, let's not because on the lawn. I'm telling you, people use that stuff right. out there in their yards. Yeah. There is green it. tissue in mm-hmm. the dor- in the most dormant Bermuda grass. Yeah. I mean, that's what kicks it off in new growth. It's got carbohydrates stored in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things we were concerned about this year is whether or not the Bermuda grass was going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you cut it very low, uh, then you're much more susceptible to it dying because at eight degrees it will die Mm -hmm. okay so we went well below that and we stayed down below that for too long i think so we could see a little bit of damage out there the better you maintained your lawn the more likely you are to have damage Mm -hmm. okay the people who don't do much to their lawn probably it will survive and be fine what if they used a lot of like high nitrogen fertilizers and things did did you think we still had (laughs) time to harden off though right pre-merge yeah you know Mm -hmm. we find that for most grasses a a fall application of a little nitrogen and higher phosphorus and potash something like that will will get you um, about two more weeks of green in the fall and about two weeks earlier green up in the spring. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also, particularly with potash, a couple of pounds per thousand square feet. That last number in that tends Mm -hmm. to help the hardiness yeah. of grass and prevent some diseases. Yeah, so, so it's not I really think, fertilizing, right? Yeah, it's just, it just uh, makes the environment unsuitable for diseases. Ah, well, we so, got to go to a break real quick. This was so interesting. I forgot about that. <laughs> we'll be right back. Good morning, gardeners. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. So uh, now hearing that seaweed is is even becoming more of a sustainable product because, of course, you know, we can eat it. It's delicious because, you know, there's seaweed Ew. and Well, hold on. You say it's delicious. It is. It, and, you know, we oh, use that's se- not an issue for me. What do you mean? I'm not eating bait. I'm sorry. Bait? <laughs> You're not eating sushi? <laughs> no. <laughs> no sushi for you. Fine then. But um, also it's good cattle feed. And they're saying this has become sustainability because it grows so fast. But it's good cattle feed, which means less uh-huh. methane. Which, which means, means they're less harvesting cow, the seaweed, cow. which means they're killing the nursery for tiny crabs and fish. Oh, but, but if you're a- doing sea, you know, like they do... Uh, little farms they do farms of seaweed and farms of fish you know where they're taking it out of its natural environment so it's not uh messing with our cycle or our environment yeah yeah. (laughs) but we're uh, yeah but we sell liquid seaweed uh which is a really good product and to me seaweed is really more of a stimulant does that make sense Mm, that it is a true fertilizer things like that Uh, it's a and it's you know, it's good for, it's got a lot of minerals in it. Uh, it's good for root development. I mean, mm-hmm. and seaweed's been, of course, it's been used forever. There's yeah. nothing, there's no secret there. But it is a, um, most gardeners use it here. Uh, instead of buying like kelp meal, right. which you can, yeah, that's the kelp that's been ground up into a meal. Uh, it seems to me that most people still use a liquid version of, of seaweed. Seaweed, yeah. And uh, it's also good because it's fibrous, so you can make things with it as well, kind of like we do with the bamboo now. So uh, I'm glad to hear that we're coming up with other things to use, you know, because if we're harvesting one thing all the time, then we do have a problem that way. But if we've got a whole bunch of different things to use in the environment, then we want to eradicate one thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of stimulants, I had a gentleman come into the garden center uh, and he bought a gallon of 
of root stimulator because he was fixing to plant mm-hmm. some shrubs yeah. and he wanted to use a stimulant to you know to hopefully prevent transplant shock and stimulate new root growth. I mean, he was doing it for all the right reasons. And then I heard him saying that he was also going to spray this root stimulator on his lawn. And he asked me, he said, do you think that's okay? And I said, well, of course. I mean, you can use, you know, root stimulator, which has a little fertilizer, Mm -hmm. but it's got that hormone in there that stimulates root growth. And I said, yeah, you can spray it on your lawn. Because, you know, some people want to do anything and everything they can to make sure that they have a wonderful-looking lawn. They want the best lawn Mm -hmm. on the street, to be honest with you. Now, what do y'all think? I mean, is it a waste of time to use a root stimulator on a lawn? Or is it just one of those things where, hey, knock yourself out. It can't do anything but help. Right. It's not going to hurt anything. I mean, I I mixed the seaweed in with the other fertilizers that I used and sprayed it on my lawn just because more so of making good soil where the roots could grow deeper. But... There's hormones in root stimulator. Exactly. I mean, we're damaging the, the root hairs, and we're wanting to put something in to make the root hairs I mean, so I know faster. it's not going to hurt the lawn, yeah, for sure. do we really need it, I Jim? mean, would it be beneficial? I mean, I guess it would be. I can see where it would be some good for fescue, where you're growing it under high-stress situations mm-hmm. in shade. Uh, I think that the, the re- expecting to see results from spraying Bermuda or zoysia, I think you're unrealistic because I don't think you would be able to tell whether you did it or not. No, right. You I can't mean, tell. Because right. you, you should have a good enough root system down there regardless. Right. You know, when you plant fescue to grow it for seed in Oregon, the roots go four to six feet deep. Yeah, and not okay. here in the Mid-South. That's right. Why. They're very shallow. So increasing the number of root hairs means you increase the amount of water it can uptake and it can compete better against the tree that you're trying to grow it under. In fact, we Jim, we do say that, and you know this, and better you too, that when you're growing fescue, uh, in the summertime, there's one thing that you have to do, and that's keep it watered, okay? you got to right. keep it hydrated. Yeah, two inches of water a week at least to keep it healthy. And I do tell people, uh, you know, to go out there about every two weeks, about twice a month, and you spray that thing down, that fescue area, with liquid seaweed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, everything that I've read uh, says that it really helps that that fescue Make it through those hot, dry summer months. Now, I'm not saying you still got to water. That's yeah, the most important it's, thing. It's really not, like Kenneth said, don't even think of it as a fertilizer. Right. You know, because it's, it's, it would take an awful lot to get to where, you know, like a handful of fertilizer would do for your tree. Right. Uh, it's just, it's just not, you know, when you're talking about 0.5 or something nitrogen, you know, uh, that whole bottle is not going to do but a couple of square feet. So don't think of it that way. Think about the other things that you're getting in it that are going to benefit the the whole soul microbe yeah. web thing, right. not as as much as the grass. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. I remember when it first came out, so I had to do an experiment with it, mix the soil all the same, got snapdragons. This was in the fall. Got snapdragons, and uh, <laughs> it's funny. Soaked um, like one six pack in the seaweed, just you know, yeah, to get the solution. roots. Yeah, yeah. Get the, yeah, so I could have the seaweed and everything right on the roots right at that time. And then the others uh, didn't uh, soak them in the seaweed and then planted them. And for real, the snapdragons that had the seaweed on them were like doubled, did, did better than the uh, other ones. And then over time, they caught up to each other. But the ones, and then I continued with the natural fertilizer, but the ones that had the seaweed at first, 
you could see where the color was a little better and the mm-hmm. blooms were just a little bit mm-hmm. bigger. Not that I think anybody would notice walking down the street that there was but, such but, a but big But looking difference. at it, looking at a comparison, yeah, you can see the difference, yeah, though. Yeah, I can see the difference. And what so. about, guys, you know, when, when a root stimulator to me is a, it's like plant insurance, you know? Yeah. When you're planting your trees and shrubs out there and you come back and you saturate that root zone, that root ball, with a root stimulator that's got that hormone, what, the endo-3 butyric acid, acid, Um, it's a good product to use. And I tell people to to use it more than one time. In fact, when I plant something like a tree or shrub, I'm going to do it once a week for about three weeks, okay? Now, there's also a root drench by Fox Farm, Mm -hmm. okay? And it's called root drench. Now, it doesn't have the hormone, the endo-3 butyric acid in there. It's got a lot, a ton of mycorrhiza in it mm-hmm. okay so is there i guess what i'm getting at is would i prefer using either one you know the endo three butyric acid which is a root stimulator or do i go with the mycorrhiza that's in the root drench or yeah. is it the end result going to be the same uh i go with the mycorrhiza because it has more benefits because you're actually mm-hmm. adding tons and tons of mycorrhiza to the soil, than, yeah. which you know is going to have a symbiotic relationship with the roots mm-hmm. down there. So, Jim, I mean, do you care well, which one you're using? My thoughts are that when you add uh, mycorrhiza to the soil, only the ones that are suitable for that environment are going to survive. That's true. Uh, and I would, I would tend to more want to feed those that you have – uh, put my money on that, you know, like just spraying it with with horticultural molasses. I mean, that will give you a huge boost in the in, that crazy? in the mycorrhiza. You know, throwing your biscuits out right. there. We, know, we used to do the soil soup thing, and that's yeah. all it was, you know. But you had to use soil soup quickly because the the stuff inside the mycorrhiza is eating itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in a couple of days, it's gone. I yeah. mean, you know, you got you got tea there with nothing in it. Yeah, people would be running home with their gallon I jugs. That. To, right. You know, they had their day timed out to where they would buy it and knew that they would apply it that day. Yeah, it had a born on date, and you had to get rid of it quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it was. Uh, but but, I, but the, I do believe that using a stimulant uh, when I plant something, especially if I'm re- newly plants or transplanting, uh, I'm going to do anything and everything I can to ensure that I have hopefully a good start mm-hmm. in creating a root system on these plants. I don't care if it's a bedding plant or a tree. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I right. think it's a win-win situation. But when he said he was going to spray this on his lawn, Maybe be just because he'd never done it before, and that maybe just he can get a leg up on his neighbor. Right. You know, it's not going to hurt the lawn whatsoever. No. I'm, but I'm with Jim. I mean, whether you're going to see the benefit other than on, say, fescue, mm-hmm. not quite sure. Yeah. I just see, you know, how Jim was saying, it helps with <clears throat> the soil web. Yeah. 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 Um, I was reading Monrovia, you know, the new catalog. Even though you can see them online, I still like to look through the catalogs. I like to smell the ink. You know? Now, Monrovia <laughs> is one of those growers mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, when you see the Monrovia brand, you know, so supposedly that plant has been really been taken care of. And then it's shipped to us, the consumer. Right. It's yeah, not just one of these fly-by-night growers. Right. Yeah, their thing <laughs> is, because um, we actually sell, and, and other places do, their soil mix. No, i got to come get some. That reminds me. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. But that's one of the things is their soil mix. 
that helps their plants healthier, helps with the soil web and all of that, keeps <clears> them healthy. And uh, now they're going to start working more biological controls and things. So um, that's one good reason to check out Monrovia. I mean, it's hard not to be a good gardener nowadays with all the good product that's right. out there. But you know, Greenleaf's good, Heinz is good, and we'll be right back. Good morning, gardeners. Welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. Glad y'all can join us today. Yeah. I was looking at um, birds, birds, and I did, and I saw a picture of a bird that um, he sews the leaf up into like a, a circle and does the nest it in the leaf. Reminds me of a can of worm, Jim. Yeah, it was <laughs> a tailor bird. That's the name of it, a tailor bird. He uses like silk from mm-hmm. plants or <clears throat> from spider webs. And he takes that beak and he just sews that leaf together and then puts a, a nest in there. That's pretty cool. It's amazing what, what wildlife does. But like I said, you know, the can of worm, but anybody and everybody that's ever grown a can of before, they understand where there's a worm, a caterpillar out there, crawls up there, grabs that leaf, wounds that thing, sews it together, and eats it from the inside out. I know. You know, what? Why? I mean, Why? Why does this all happen? <laughs> so just be aware if you ever grow cannas. That you're going to get the canna worm. Canna, you grow a canna? Yeah, oh yeah. Cannas are super easy to grow. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where it's one of the old grandmother plants to me. Yeah. You know, I, I've said this story before, driving down an old country road, you see the white tractor tire. The tractor tire has been paint, painted white mm-hmm. and got dirt in the center of it. That's the little raised bed, and you got cannas coming up in, you know, in the middle yeah. of it. They probably use that white paint to paint the tractor tires as the same white paint that you use to paint the trees, tree trunks. Probably, yeah. We yeah. used to paint, paint the trunks of trees with lime, keep, mm-hmm. keep boar yeah. from climbing yeah. up. Back, it, back in the day. Yeah. But when but cannas, though, in my mind, it reminds me of an old grandmother plant, mm-hmm. which I'm not saying is a good or bad thing. Surely not a bad thing, right? <laughs> right. Because cannas can be really attractive. I mean, there's dwarf ones now. There's the tall ones. All uh, kinds my of mother colors. had a stand of these beautiful canary yellow blooming cannas. Nice. I mean, yeah. really pretty. Of course, you started getting the canna worms in there, and you can go in there and you cut that foliage out, and you can come back and spray with BT or spinosad or something that would kill caterpillars. But at the same time, these things were spreading so fast. The cannas were, yes. yeah. So it was another one of those good, you know, it, it was a good problem to have, mm-hmm. you know. But, but they get, went to places you didn't want them to be. Yeah, so yeah. she finally, finally, after years okay. and years, she told me just, you know, to dig the whole bed up. And I, I, I'm i pretty sure I dug for a day. I think if, uh, yeah, yeah. I think if I had cannas early when the plants started coming up, I may take some of the diatomaceous earth <clears throat> or the BT and dust down in there and hopefully catch some before they continue to ruin my plant. Well, and, and changing gears, y'all, I had a, a gentleman, you know, and we talk about this all the time, but I'm not going to dwell on it. I had a gentleman in the garden center the other day talking about moles, okay, M-O-L-E-S. You know, the moles, they're, they're tearing up his yard, they are tunnels everywhere. And he was like, man, I want to put this stuff down to kill the grubs. And we got to talking about grubs, okay? And, yeah, you can put Dilox down, and it will kill grubs. And there's products you can put down later on that will keep that second generation from forming, the imidacloripid, you know, granulated. But my point was is... You know, forever we've always had grubs here in the Mid-South because we've had the beetles that lay the eggs, and that's where the beetles come from. But now we started talking about not only the June bug, but the Japanese beetle, okay? 
And you know how many more Japanese beetles we have around here now? I mean, it's an <laughs> epidemic almost when they come out in the summertime. Every year there's more and more and more. And guess what? They're coming from grubs also. So it's one of those things where I don't – we've got a lot more grubs out there in our lawns and in our beds than we ever have had before. Because there again, with the introduction and the advent of these Japanese beetles, that we really didn't used to have that many of them around here. We'd always see five or ten, maybe during a growing season, and now you see tens of thousands. So, guys, don't we think that thinking about controlling grubs, especially now, Mm -hmm. is a good thing because not only can the damage that they can do to our lawns, but also, you know, they're bringing in the moles that love to eat on the grubs. Thoughts? Yeah, I think um, treating May 1st or so with imidacloprid is probably the best control. You know, I'm more concerned about the damage you're going to do to the turf in the, you know, in the fall than I am. What really about eating your ateas or most, most everything blooms. Yeah. Most everything's <laughs> going to sprout back out and rebloom mm-hmm. in the spring. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you get in you know, the first of June or so, you mm-hmm. get your roses eaten, they're going to come right back out. Yeah. You know, so they're not likely to kill anything. Uh, but and, they will eat those roses up. Right. Those Japanese beetles. Will. But, you know, they're flying in from everybody else's house, not just yours. I mean, you go out there and kill them all right now. They're going to be some more back very That's shortly. Right. That's right. So it's it's not an, it, it's difficult to control them that way. The, the best thing to do is, is protect your turf. And then just deal with isolated events. If you know if they find your crepe myrtle, uh, then get out there. But, and, and treat but we do definitely there. agree that they're by default. There are more grubs out there now than I think there's ever been. Oh gosh, yes. You yeah, know. there's got to be. There's got to be. You know, the they used to tell you how to decide whether you should treat for grubs or not, and that would be dig a one by one square in your yard in your lawn and then if you Pull get that more, up. yeah and if you get more than like five per square foot yeah then there's the possibility it can start do they can um, start doing damage on the root system of your lawn so if you were less than five per square foot then it was really okay you don't have to spray because that you're not going to have so many that they're going to eat your root system i don't know if that would happen with the japanese beetles though because i mean well at five per square foot you'd have little damage but you know in if in heavily infected areas, we'll see 25 to 40 per square foot. Wow, I wondered how many we could possibly yeah. find. You, you. Can, you can take the your soil, your your turf, and just roll it up, mm-hmm. you know, and lay it somewhere else if you want Because to. they were just eating the root yeah, system right off like of your, your turf. But, but in this case, the guy was, the whole argument was he wanted to get rid of the grubs because they were bringing in the moles. Mm-hmm. And we all know that moles love grubs and worms. I mean, that's what they eat. That's yeah. what they feed on. So... You know, there again, I was telling him about with the introduction, and we're just seeing the mass numbers of these Japanese beetles now. It's not just the June beetle we're seeing, it's the Japanese beetle also, that, you know, that these are the best days for moles, is all I can say. Because <laughs> there's so much food around. Exactly. Oh, I had a big Labrador, and she was a Labrador and a... Um, rottweiler mix i'm sure that's a digger it was crazy um but she liked when when i would start working in the yard she'd run out there and sit beside me 
because I'd feed her the grubs. Wouldn't oh, find so, but a she lot. wouldn't she go out liked, there and try to dig up the mold. No, no, she would just want to eat the like grubs. Like a little Jack Russell. Then. Right, no. She's like, I, luckily I did not have uh, moles except for in one spot in the back, and I was leaving it all alone, not going to do anything because the, the, it went up to the fence, and then there was kind of like a, a ditch behind, pretty, pretty far down. And um, the moles were right there on the fence line and I went walking back and sunk down to my knees. Oh yeah. So the moles weren't all in my yard or anything like that. I had no idea this was going on. <laughs> and I walked back there and sunk to my knees just because of the moles. So somehow I didn't treat or anything, just stomping around or rearranging the soil and all. Yeah. They they moved, but they had a place to go. I mean, it wasn't the neighbors. Yeah, yard. sometimes get lucky, you know, and, and go through life and never really have yeah. much of a mole problem. <laughs> but and some of us God dang it, man. You know, there's just a, so we have to change our our outlook and just consider moles natural predators. Jim, we, we introduction have. of a natural predator for Japanese beetles. Yep, there we go. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So you know, but see, that's, that's gonna be so hard do you for me want to do. A, do you want a trench in your yard, or do you want your roses eaten down to the ground? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's but I'm just that's saying, guys, one, that they're it? they're definitely by default a lot more grubs out there than there were five, ten years ago. Because of the tens of hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands and millions of Japanese beetles that we're seeing every year here now in the Mid-South. And that's not going away, by the way. Right. Oh, well. Moles are always going to be around. Japanese beetles, all this stuff's going to be around. And we'll have new things that will show up that we had no idea was going to happen. I don't think any's going to go away. We're just going to get new ones. And we're going to be here every week talk about yeah, them. Yes, that's there. right. And we're going to go to a break right now, and uh, we'll come back. 260-5926. Good morning, and welcome back to Mid-South Gardening. We've had lots of wonderful topics. One thing we didn't talk about was the fact that you can still, I don't say still plant, you can plant now trees, shrubs, even perennials, you know, some of them that are coming out of the bucket, you know, you can tell they're alive, you can plant perennials, trees, shrubs, perennials, uh, ground covers, anything, you can do container gardens, I just did two containers yesterday, mm-hmm. I did lemon cypress, English ivy and rosemary. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The lemon the lemon cypress is a pretty cool little plant. Actually had two indoors since Thanksgiving and they still look good. Mm. They still look good. And then they they're right borderline hardy here, you know, especially mm-hmm. if you've got them kind of tucked up against the wall that gets warmer, gets mm-hmm. radiated heat. They're they're right on that that border of being hardy. So and I'm thinking this can't be real. This lemon cypress can do this good indoors here, but it can also be something outdoors. So I'm using it in containers and if we do another one of these that we just did, I, of course I'm gonna move my containers in. Um Except for these two containers, there's no way I'm yeah. going to be able to move these in. Now, what about when you plant a what is you know you plant a shrub or a a tree here in the mid south? And and like Jim is always saying that, you know, one of the beauties of our soil is our clay soil. One of the detriments of our soil is our clay soil. You know, <laughs> so there there are ways and, th- and things that you should do every time you plant a tree or a shrub. Okay, and we always preach reach <laughs> dig the hole no deeper than the root ball even if that deep okay mm-hmm. so you go and then but dig the hole wider so you go wider than you do deep 
That's the first thing that you need to do right. And then I always like to amend the soil. Okay. That came out of the, yeah, the hole. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not saying replace the clay soil. Mm-hmm. I like to amend the soil just to improve the drainage a little more, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's soil conditioners and, you know, different soils that yeah, you can garden soils. Mix, and, right. form, so just kind of work nature, that in yeah. with your clay soil. Put that back in there. And then I don't care what you're planting, whatever tree, whatever shrub. I also want to plant that root ball just slightly above grade, mm-hmm. you know, just a little high. And then you can come back in and mulch all that in. And I promise you, if you plant your trees and shrubs that way, you're almost guaranteed. Now, if you got to water in the summertime, of course, but you're almost guaranteed that these plants are going to make it. You know? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's really important. And then I also tell people I never like to plant a tree or a shrub when the ground is sloppy, wet, or muddy either. Uh, because when you dig up that soil, the consistency is not the same as a little drier soil. So keep that in mind, too. Yeah. Yep, so planting now is good. Um, if you don't want to really do any work in your yard, you could start getting supplies. Like you could go out and buy your, you know, supply your garage with your pre-emergence and your compost and your root stimulators and, and all those, check your tools out and all those things that you're going to need. There's nothing worse than getting up on Saturday morning and just really psyched and ready to work in your yard but then first you have to go to the store and buy it all so by the time you get that done it's probably after lunch and then you've got to eat and then man you need that nap oh yeah and then you know so so it's good to go ahead and have all your supplies except for your plants well you know get all your supplies for the week Uh, during the week and then be ready on the weekend you've got it all there and you don't have to leave and you got tired just listening to (laughs) it And go out there and get that nice pair of hand pruners that you've mm-hmm. loved forever, and the spring is gone. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. It's not worth a penny, you know, if it's not working right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The spring is gone on the pruners. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. right, the shovel breaks. It's just everything. And, and, and let me say this also. Even, even a good pair of loppers. You know, they don't stay sharp forever. Man. I promise you. I'll tell you what. So, I wish they, I think they do. <laughs> and, and, and then another thing also is that uh, that broadcast spreader that we've been using for the last 10 uh-huh. years. Uh, and we're guessing at, you know, we're. we're <laughs> that it was never calibrated right now. No, right, no, right. no, no, no. It was never, Jim. You're right. <laughs> and now part of it's broken, you know, so. And you're thinking, well, I remember last year it was only open this Yeah, and, much. I, and I can still use that yeah, for one I more year. Yeah, I know how this so. works. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, there comes a time when you have to replace some of these, these tools. I what don't about, care how fond we are of them. What about this Roundup's been on the shelf for five years? I just found it in the back. But what it's only frozen four that? times, Veda. Yeah. Well, if, it, if it's concentrate, it's still good. It's still good. Oh, because there's no water mixed in to freeze, uh, to yeah, no, change yeah. up the... If it's ready-to-use stuff, yeah, yeah, I would uh, I'd go ahead and use it according to the label the if you need to get mm-hmm. rid of it. But it's you may not get the results that you're hoping for. A lot of uh, the plastic bottles that we see these things put in... Aren't, don't have a really good liner in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can smell the chemical coming through it, you know some of that's been absorbed. Yeah, into, be careful doing that into yeah. the plastic, yeah. uh, which means you know when you're looking at Roundup, which is um, in the, the premix, which is what 
half percent or so yeah. or less. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking about very little bit of active ingredients. So uh, I usually mark on the label when you buy a product like that, put on the label what year you got it. You just know. get a Sharpie and just write on the yeah. bottle, Jim. You know, and yeah. if it's over two years old and it's ready to use product, then I would then use, use it. it. But, but, you know. Go ahead and use it up. Yeah. yeah. Get, get so some fresh stuff. It. So what are our temperature barriers for the heat and the coldness? For the activity of the chemical. To well, be I, mean, I mean, it's never good to have chemicals. Uh, and a lot of times we have to by default, but it's never good to have them in extreme temperatures and it's never yeah. good to have them, you know, freeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of times they have to go in that little storage shed, you know, in the carport, the garage, whatever. And typically, you know, it's either a little cooler in there at, you know, in the summer, a little warm in there in the winter. But, you know, none of us are probably storing our true chemicals mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, the right temperature range anyway, honestly. Well, mm-hmm. if they're in the garage and aren't freezing, right. uh, well, I'm they're saying, probably but, okay. But if they are freezing, you know, yeah, and a lot of times them. they've got them in these little sheds out there, you know, that, you know, no bigger than a mailbox, and those things are freezing. Mm-hmm. And it's never good to have these products freeze because it can change the chemical makeup of what you right. thought you bought, right? They can sometimes make it stronger. Well, a lot of times it it can also make it where it's just not going to work. Yeah. Uh, Either way, it's not a good thing. And so the heat, uh, when we say extreme temperatures, I mean, are we talking 130 degrees? Or, I mean, extreme to me is at least 100. Yeah, I would say, you know, 110, 115 or higher would be something to avoid. Yeah. And then also, guys, if if you've got a storage shed just full a 30-year-old product, which mm-hmm. a lot of times we see that. And, in fact, we still see people bring up insecticides or herbicides that are still in a glass bottle, okay? I have some of those. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. there is I still a— still have some dust on and that's the reason I don't have can of worms. Yeah, you're exactly <laughs> right, Jim. Jim's got the good stuff. But at—there's uh, Amnesty Day, you know, that they have at the Ag Center— <laughs> Uh, where you can get rid of a lot of this stuff well, safely. Well, they have, you know, the hazardous waste place also, at, at, and they'll take most all yeah, of Yeah, and just give them a call. But there's there's a, a correct a way to dispose mm-hmm. of this stuff is my point. Right. This is at um, Shelby Farms yeah. area? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's out you don't want to just farm. take this stuff and throw it in a plastic yeah. bag and throw it in the trash. Because uh, yeah. I think people, people do. Now, if it's empty... I, you can I, throw it in the trash. Yeah. yeah wash it I've out heard, and throw it in the like, trash. Yeah. wrap it in a bag three times or something. Well, used to a lot of the products like Melathine to even said you could dispose of partially filled bottles by wrapping them in paper and throwing them in. Because once, if it got out of the container, it breaks down really quick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the half-life on Melathine is like 36 hours. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not going to be right. a long-term It's not a contaminant that's going to be there. Right. Right. Now, you know, it's not like chlorine, which I still have some, too. Um, it, you know, it's been off the market since 72. Uh, it has about a 30-year residual. Well, it, no, it has a permanent residual. You <laughs> well, know? That you was go. a thing. If you ever had, had a house that was properly treated with chlorine, mm-hmm. you were not going to get termites. Not ever. Yep. Not yeah. ever. Right. <laughs> you know? So uh, it was also a good crabgrass preventer. You know, you just spray your lawn with it, killed, you know, insects and kept wheat seed from coming yeah. up. I mean, what's and, better and, than and the beauty mm-hmm. of it, guys, and we're making fun of this, but you know the yeah, I am. Just, just the, so it's clear folks. most of the products that are on the market now uh, are definitely a lot safer and 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 the reason I say safer is if you use them all accordingly you know they're they're safe anyway mm-hmm. 
but these are safer because you don't have those long residuals, you know, yeah. that you had with some of these old products. And and then the organophosphates, Jim, you know, the Dazlons and the Durant. Yeah, some of those, those were tough. And, the, and they're off yeah. the market anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all these products that are on the market now that replaced all those old products, the good thing is they still work really good. But they're not near, I mean, they're much more safe to use than the old product. I, mean, I was a pesticide operator in about 94, I oh, think, you were or in so. The... Yeah, and um, I remember one of the classes where they were, they were telling us that in the future, things will be in smaller bottles. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of us having to use three tablespoons per gallon, mm-hmm. they would have it down to where we're having to use like half a tablespoon yeah, per gallon. A lot gallon. of that is true today. So, I mean, that was an improvement, actually, even though it is like a synthetic or a chemical. It was still an improvement of how we were putting it down in the past. Well, too. but still, like I said, though, a lot of those products that were really toxic, I mean, really toxic, and, you know, had these very long residuals, um, as far as the homeowner goes, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that we buy at the garden centers, uh, man, that stuff has been replaced by a lot of these permethrins or these, you know, permethrin family products that are so much safer mm-hmm. to use, though. Yeah. And I love that. I love and, the idea of that. And the thing to remember, though, is even though they are natural and safe, you still should be aware. Or, or organic. Least, yeah. you know, we don't let organic, it, natural safe doesn't mean that they won't kill you. Yeah, don't let it just drip all over you. Let it blow back on you. Still don't do that, even though it's safe. I mean, there's different concentrations. You can use neem as toothpaste. We need DDT back. Yes, yeah. we do. You can use neem as toothpaste or an insecticide. It depends on the concentration or what it's mixed with. We'll be right back next Saturday.